0: Okay? Okay. Great. This is an oral history interview with Howard O. Green, Jr., for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in Howard's home in Mount Vernon, Virginia. Today is July 11th, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Howard, let's start with a little bit of your family background and the steps that led you eventually to the U.S. Senate.
1: Well, Brian, I was born in Delaware, Lewis, Delaware. Graduated from Wesley College in Dover, Delaware, and transferred over to the University of Maryland. Um, was looking for a part-time job in the Washington area. My father mentioned that I'd go down on Capitol Hill and look up an old hunting friend of his by the name of Senator John J. Williams of Delaware, who has been my mentor. He. Um, In the year 68, January of 68, I got a job as seating tours up in the third floor of the Capitol, worked my way into the Senate Republican cloakroom answering telephones on his patronage, which is a thing of the past now in the Senate, in 69. And my job in the cloakroom was to sit there with two other gentlemen and answer the telephones and answer questions from Senate offices or to do whatever a senator asked us to do as they came in the cloakroom, make phone calls, do this, do that, whatever. And I worked my way up from there to the assistant secretary of the minority in the late sixties, I'm sorry, the late seventies. And from then in 81, when Reagan came into control, and we had taken back the majority for the first time since 1954. I became the secretary for the majority. In other words, I was sort of the, so to speak, right-hand man for the leader, Howard Baker. Um, Baker retired in 84, I think it was, and Bob Dole became the leader. I retained that position, and back and forth between majority and minority leader until when I was made uh, the Sergeant Arms in the United States Senate that's the Sergeant Arms doorkeeper and protocol chief and I stayed in that position until I l- retired from the Senate in late 96 and that job encompassed um, a budget of about $110 million $36, 38000000 of it was salary I had about $1,050 civilian employees, plus about a 1,200 member police force in eight or ten major compartments to deal with on the hill. And um, by that time, I I was pushing up to 30 years, and I knew that I had walked those barber halls just about long enough. And after Senator Dole retired with his farewell speech in June of 96, um, I exited in September of 96. Okay. Good. We can stop now. <laughs> <laughs> did I go too long? No. No, that was a good review.
0: Um, now let's go back and fill in the, the details. Okay. Um, was there, uh, did you grow up in a family where there were strong
1: political feelings and lots of political discussion, or was it more just this hunting connection with Senator Williams? Uh, it's funny you would ask. My grandfather was in politics and in the Delaware State Legislature. He lived in Dover and I think he made have served a couple of terms in the state legislature, and I got involved in that because every time we would go to my grandparents' house in Dover from Lewis, Delaware, about a 45-minute trip, we always sat down before we had any dinner or anything like to watch meet the press. And as a young kid we were told to sit down and be quiet and listen. We had no idea what, we were talking, what they were talking about or cared but for some reason, some of that got in my blood. And from then on, I knew when I got to college, I wanted to get, have some input in political science and U.S. history. Uh, that was really the first thing that got me going, because for some reason, as a probably a 12 or 14-year-old, I got interested in what was being said on Meet the Press. I couldn't explain why if you put a gun to my head, but that and... The 1960 assassination of Kennedy, where I just didn't go to work for three days. I sat in a chair and watched the proceedings and the funeral you know, and, and whatever. Really got into my blood. And then when this opportunity came up for me on Capitol Hill to take a patronage job on the Senator John Williams from Delaware, I realized after a few days when I came to work that day during and before or after classes at University of Maryland, when I would pull up to that Capitol Dome, my heart would start beating faster. And sometimes I would pull in there and say, how in the world did I ever get this position? To the point that some days uh, even tears would come to my eyes. What am I doing here? I loved it every minute of it. And the more opportunities I had, the more I was lucky enough to Proceed up the ladder, and it was just a, a great career. I couldn't ask for any better. And I still love politics. Um, of course, it's not, my, it's not in my blood as much as it was because I think I exhausted most of my energy in the 30 years of trying to do the best job I could on the Hill.
0: You mentioned the term
1: patronage and that it no longer applies. Explain what, what, what patronage was. Patronage years ago, when senior senators were allotted so much money on their staff to hire a person uh, as a policeman. The policemen years ago were not professional. They could go to college while they were a policeman. Um, And the more senior a senator became, and Senator John Williams was very senior, he was ranking on the finance committee, the more patronage positions they had. Patronage positions included, as I said, policemen, pages, elevator operators, Doorkeepers, grounds crew. Uh, the word intern did not apply then, as it does now. Um, so it would have to be people who would help out in the office to do the the what is now called the gopher jobs. Uh, it would just sort of add-ons that senators could use as political favors for people back home who helped them get elected office.
0: And do you recall when an end was put to the patronage system? Wow. Uh, I don't mean the date necessarily, but the the arguments I used. think
1: I think most of it uh, most of it came when the police department had to go to a professional police department because of uh, some of the early bombings in the Capitol, which went back into the early 70s. And I think it also, um, the crime wave around the Capitol, that once the police department Stop being patron uh, patronage appointments, that a lot of senators decided that it, it looked a little bad for those senators to put people who would raise the most money in their campaign to relatives or grandsons and stuff like that. And I think the the New Times were about on them where the news media would start to look over their shoulders and they thought it was a good thing to get rid of it. And I know that's a poor explanation of why, but I think that it had just, it had passed its time as far as favors being put out in the form of patronage departments. Now, you mentioned
0: the four offices, uh, the floor offices I think they were referred to, is that four. correct? Right. Explain what each of those four offices, what they are and their function, you briefly touched on it, but a little more detail. And then I'd like you to say if changes occurred in any of those four over your tenure in the Senate.
1: Uh, first of all, first, uh, I don't think that much changed because it's all been those four offices have been there since the almost the creation of the Senate back in, in uh, years ago. I'm not going to try to guess when. But the um, Secretary of Majority and the Secretary of Majority are interchangeable, obviously, as I said, because one. Majority is the ruling party, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, and the others are the, uh, uh, the tail-waggers, the minority party. Uh, there is the Secretary of the Senate, which is sort of the top position in the Senate, which, overhaul, which oversees uh, the payroll. Um, it oversees the, the uh, um, binding and, and printing of the bills to be sent to the White House for the President's signature. It oversees the, really the, the swearing in and the authorization of newly elected or newly appointed senators and so forth and so on. Again, the secretary for the majority, the secretary of the minority, as I said, were are officers of that particular party. Uh, we would run the cloakroom. We would run the paid service. We would have the responsibility of having the information people, uh, have the people on telephones in the cloakroom giving out information to offices, staff, to senators, and then to lobbyists and interest groups on the outside. We call and say, when is that vote scheduled? When is that bill coming up? When do you expect that bill to pass? It had to do with um, committee assignments, which was uh, when the ratio changed or the number of senators changed in the Senate, the ratio would change and therefore The majority party would have more members on the committees than the minority party, and you'd have a give-and-take or or a lose-and-gain situation on the committees. Um, It really handled the uh, taking of the votes on the floor, where we'd have a little crib sheet for senators to see when they came in to vote. Uh, It had to do with, back in the early years, with little beepers, that we would beep senators when there was a vote. Uh, Before that, we had to call them on the telephone, and hopefully we could find out where they were to say, all right, it's 9 o'clock at night, we expect to vote at 9.30, really to round senators up. Um, is It was much more than that, but that was the teeth of, of the job. Uh, and of course, the Sergeant Arms job is, as I explained to you briefly earlier, was much more encompassing because I was really the physical factory of the Senate, mainly security. And after the uh, uh, bombing of the Oklahoma City at 95 when I became Sergeant Arms and then 9-11 and what have you since then, that has really been uh, a situation where a lot of money has been funneled into the security of the Senate. The police force is much more professional than it has been in the past. Uh, When I was there at 95 after the explosion at the Oklahoma City, I started to close some streets around the office buildings. And They told me, he said Howard, you're crazy. You're gonna, they're gonna take you apart for this. You can't tell senators they can't park on that street. You can't make that street a walk through. Well, we put barricades up and we put kiosks to make senators and everybody else show their identification. And they wanted to put a, uh, a fence around the Capitol, which we didn't think we were ready for that. But uh, the security really changed almost overnight to the point now even though I was told that I would be hung by in the nearest tree if I tried to block some avenues around the office building, now it's like a fortress there. You can't get around because of the barricades and balusters and everything else. But that was the... And, of course, the sergeant Arms also included uh, the, uh, the computer center. It completed the service department where senators have their charts and stuff printed it included the parking it included the uh... the grounds crew it included the uh... the, the physical plan as far as the elevators mechanics of the, uh... the elevators the cleaning of the buildings and capital the office buildings it was quite uh... a big job and that was nonpartisan. no the sergeant arms um was a job that was usually delegated to the majority leader. So, if the Republicans control, you had a Republican Sergeant at Arms and a Republican Secretary to Senate, vice versa, if the Democrats were in control.
0: But I, you had to evenly serve the interests of both
1: parties. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't follow you, Brian. Yes, exactly, exactly. As Secretary of Majority and Secretary of Minority, you're, you you worked for that party. As Secretary of the Senate. Even though you were appointed by the majority leader and the sergeant at arms appointed by the majority leader, you were secretary of the Senate, and you were sergeant at arms of the Senate, and you your responsibility was to 100, not to the 47, 53, 52, that we had as Republicans through the years. Absolutely, I, I should have I shouldn't have left that out. Yes, yeah, so you you had to deal with the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Did that. Uh force you to do a keratological change in your mindset or no, no it did it made it easier for me because for when you're there that when you're there for that many years you make friends on both sides of the aisle I mean I went to we would fly around the world on these so-called CODELs, congressional delegation trips with senators Republican senators and Democratic senators and there's nothing like flying on an airplane for two weeks to six-rate stops around the world. You're on the same plane together, you eat meals together, you stay in a hotel together, you go to banquets together, you do this, and you get to know these people away from the United States Senate. And you finally realize, my God, they're real people and they're good people. And I got to know a lot of Democrats and we would go to Baltimore to the baseball games together. Tom Eagleton, Jim Exon, people like that who are baseball fans. And I enjoyed being able to sort of expand on those relationships with Democrats. And they were friends. I mean, we were there 12, 16, 18 hours a day, brushing shoulders all the time, and I enjoyed that part of it. Of course, I, you have to be careful because you don't want to act like you're, you're giving more help to the to the Democrats when Republicans are in control, but I never had a problem with that. For some reason, I was able... Through I don't know maybe I had to write makeup or something. I was able to get along with almost everybody there, Democrat or Republican, and considered a lot of them friends.
0: Before we leave the structure of of these um, Senate uh, offices, uh, you've mentioned
1: doorkeepers and the cloakroom. Give us a little bit of what that was all about. Well, doorkeepers doorkeepers upstairs on the in the Senate in the second floor and the third floor were all assigned to the various doors in the Senate chamber on the second floor with a uniformed policeman and a uh, plainclothes policeman. And we were there to identify senators as they came in and and went out uh, to keep staff from coming in because they had to go around to the back of the chamber to be checked in and get an ID card. Uh, We had to be careful that a former senator didn't walk up to one of those doors who they have floor privileges for life and were turned around by a policeman who didn't happen to know who they were. Um, The dormant upstairs would seat these various school groups that would come in in the summertime endlessly and line up through the bowels of of the basement of the Capitol and work their way back to the first and second and third floor to sit for 15 minutes and watch the gallery, watch the Senate in, in session from the gallery. And we had to quietly seat them and keep them quiet and asked them to get up gently and leave without interrupting the floor operation. That was the first job I had in the Senate. Um, the, the, and I, Back then, they were patronage jobs, and now they are to a degree, but they're patronage jobs that was hired by the sergeant in arms and not through various senators, although various senators still have these so-called uh, suggestions to the office of the Senate as to who they might want to take a look at to employ if you follow my drift.
0: And are these career positions, or people moved in and out over two a or three-year terms?
1: A lot of them, the years, Brian, were uh, just temporary because a lot of the, the doormen, as I said before, were going to school. And then it got to the point where a lot of doormen became, because of security, became retired metropolitan or... Uh, state pl- metropolitan police or state police from surrounding areas who had retired, or even so military who would d- do the so-called double dipping, but they had the police and military experience, which worked well to serve on the, to serve on the doors as security with a uniform and a plainclothes policeman. And what about the cloakroom itself? What was that? Cloakroom is the nerve center of, of the Senate. I mean, that's where the senators would hang out uh, if they had someone and I shouldn't lead off with this if they had someone coming in their office that they didn't want to meet they would always say they had something to do in the cloakroom uh, what few smokers were left to sit in there and smoke their pipes or smoke their cigars um, the staff would come in and have the senator sign papers sign the mail in the cloakroom it was very restrictive we didn't allow staff to hang out in there they could come in and with their little chores to the senators as far as paperwork and correspondence and stuff like that. We had three and then four desks at the end of the cloakroom where people would answer the telephones, and as which I've alluded to, questions from senators, uh, from staff members, even from outsiders. But probably the mo- most of the questions in 75 to 80% of all the questions were from a scheduling secretary or a personal secretary that wanted to know What what asked the impossible questions is my senator's got to be in Kalamazoo on Friday. He's got to leave at 11 o'clock. Will he miss any votes? My senator won't be back, won't be out in in town on Tuesday. Uh, His aunt is ill in Colorado. Will he miss any votes? That became a pain in the neck because that was all forwarded to the leader. And you cannot run uh, the Senate or any other business when everybody's going hither and yon and expect to be protected. But the main purpose was answer to answer the impossible questions as to when do you expect that bill to come up? Uh, I need to know when Senator so forth and so on is going to offer his amendment. Uh, That's so forth and so on from the uh, from. Uh, the news organization, do you know a head count on so forth and so on's amendment, which was completely out of our purview. Um, little questions like that, but it was mostly the, the page operation out of the cloakroom, and that was the gathering place for senators just sit and chit-chat among themselves, to ask for senators to co-sponsor their amendments, ask for senators to add their language to amendments to get their vote, uh, to do head counts on important pieces of legislation. Uh, it was the nerve center.
0: And there was a cloakroom for
1: Republicans and there was a cloakroom for Democrats? Right. am I wrong? That's right. Cloakroom for Democrats, cloakroom for, for Republicans. It's a funny story about that. Um, back in the early 60s, Patricia, Nixon, and, um, and Julie had Princess Charles, Prince Charles and Princess Anne over and we were told to be in the cloakroom at morning at 6.30. And um, because they were coming up to have a tour of the, of the Senate. And Prince Charles and Princess Anne were, I guess, in their early, maybe teens, or, or they had to be. Because Julian, I, I guess, the late teens or something like that. Maybe early 20s. Um, anyhow... They were standing in the well of the Senate, and I came down from the Republican cloakroom down in the well of the Senate, the center of the Senate, where the two leaders' desks are located, and we gave a little talk about the cloakrooms and, and how the, the statues around the chamber are the various vice presidents of the United States, and this gallery is where, is, where the president would send up representatives from the, from the executive department to watch what's going on. and over here would be the press and over here is what is called the vice president's gallery and over here is the family gallery where senators wives and friends can come in and watch the senator speak or vote or whatever and of course over here to get back to your point brian over here and i pointed on the right side of the back of the chamber and the left side of the back of the chamber are the two cloakrooms republican and democrat prince charles <clears throat> <clears throat> Pence Charles hesitated for a second, and he looked at me with a serious look on his face. He says, "Oh, they each have their own." I didn't know how to handle that, and I said, "Yes, sir, they do." Well, little did I know, after they left, that a cloakroom in England was a bathroom. So he thought I was referring to the two rooms off immediately off the Senate chamber as a place where the Republicans used the bathroom and the Democrats used the bathroom. Somehow a press person got hold of that story and they wanted to run it. And we had all we could do to keep that off because it would have been embarrassing as hell to, to the Brits or to the Prince Charles and Princess Anne. But now that you brought that cloakroom up about do they have my, I just had to add that one to the story. That was one of the little quirks that happened along the way. but. They were just as serious as they could be because it, that was what that was what was the the bathroom in in England
0: funny story um, Where would a Republican who wanted to chat with a colleague who was a Democrat where would they go to to sit and and talk like Republicans would do in the cloakroom or Democrats?
1: Well, sometimes they would go in either of the two cloakrooms to sit and chat. But sometimes that was a little difficult because it was a time when senators were waiting to vote or waiting to speak. It was pretty crowded. So now you get to the second most important hangout there is in the United States Capitol in the Senate wing, and that is behind all the dusty statues that align those halls. And the, the, the word is around the Capitol, if those statues could ever talk, they would be able to explain how bills passed back to the early 1800s. Two senators would be leaning up on it against the statue, and they would be talking political strategy. Um, what? Who can we get to co-sponsor uh, this amendment? When should we offer it? How much money should we dele- put too much money in it? So much money in it, so forth and so on. A lot of the talks, as you alluded to, the personal talks, the um, trying to fine-tune something, happened in the corridors, hanging on to statues of Tom, Dick, and Harry. So, from what you
0: say, I gather that a Democrat would be welcome to come into uh, the Republican
1: cloakroom to chat with a, with a fellow member. They would do that once in a while, but they would feel so uneasy e- either way that um, especially, like I said, if, if there was a crowd of senators coming in or they were constantly coming in or walking through from the outside to come to the cloakroom to go to the Senate floor, they, they, they would usually take their little skull sessions elsewhere. But yes, they were they were interchangeable to a degree.
0: Since we're on this Where Senators Hang Out, uh, you had mentioned when you were talking about some of the pictures here that there were some places where guys would go to, quote unquote, play cards.
1: Tell me about that. Well, for years there was always, a, there was always the hangouts. Um, like I said, it was the Twilight Lodge up in S-337, which was my old office, and, uh, and, my, uh, and Senator Mar- Mark he was the secretary for the minority and secretary of the Senate for 53 years. Uh, then it sort of got away from the secretaries as a majority-minority of hosting those so-called card parties and the hangout really became the Secretary of the Senate, mostly, um, and sometimes the Sergeant Arms Office. Or they remodeled a lot of parts of the Capitol back in the 70s and 80s and created a lot more Senators' hideaways in the Capitol. And Senators' hideaways are little rooms which were, were made over, some small, some very small, some looking toward the mall, some with no windows, and they were their hideaway in the Capitol. And more so than anything else, for raising up, for going up through the seniority list, as far as how long you've been there, of course, the most important thing of seniority would be what committee assignments you might get, the longer you stayed there, your parking place would be enhanced. But the most sought-after thing in that building was the senators' hideaways because the higher you were on the seniority list, in other words, were you ranked on the Democrat or Republican list of senators, the more appropriate hideaway you would get. And they were used a lot as they increased the remodeling of capital. And when I left there, I think they are up to, I remember back, they were, they were in their 20s, 26 or 27 then, of course they they were all given to the old bulls, so to speak. Back in the Dirksen and Scott days, as in Senator Dirksen, Senator Hugh Scott, Republican leaders, but as they increased in size, um, a lot of senators would you know, use those as the place where they congregate instead of the cloakroom or behind the statues, and they would take the fat cats who would come in or the corporate heads instead of marching them through the office buildings where they were visible to everybody, they would take them to the Capitol, they'd go down to the dining room and eat, and then they'd go up and have their little meeting in their so-called hideaways. And some were very elaborate. Were
0: there, when you first started serving uh, the Senate, were there hideaway offices already then?
1: Oh, yes. My office, which was S-33, S337 in the Capitol, third floor, looked straight down the mall to the Washington Monument. I had three windows, two little offices, and my whole floor was nothing but senators' offices except for my office in the corner when I was a sec- became secretary of majority, even before when I was... Uh, assistant secretary for the minority. I worked at that office with my then boss. But the numbers of hideaway offices increased... Have increased through the years, yes, because they were so attractive. I mean, that was was a big power grab. Not the parking place. Yes, the committee assignments. But when you had a, a hideaway that looked straight down the mall toward the Washington Monument, or sometimes looked over the other way toward the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress... Or was a big room where you could have a couch where they could sleep at night for all-night sessions and a, a sink or, or, a, or a wet bar or whatever. You, that was the creme de creme. Who assigned uh, people to these hideaway offices? It was primarily the rules committee um, uh, would handle the, uh, the assignment of the, um, of the hideaways by straight seniority. In other words, the most senior person there would get the best one. We go back to you know like Robert Byrd or Ted Kennedy or Inouye, and the, speaking of senior senators there now, would always get the criminal, criminal cop.
0: So they were constantly. It was like musical chairs. They were constantly changing offices. Is that right?
1: Well, that's right because you know as people retired or as people were defeated, uh, especially if they'd been there for a number of years, for two terms or, th- or three terms. As those as those offices became vacant, it would start the chain of events again. And so the the old bulls who'd had hideaways would say, oh, he's got a better view than I've got. I want that one. And then it would all start all over again. Just as committee assignments, when senators would leave, we'd have to work on ratios. And senators would say, uh, I've been on this committee too long. Um, I'm going to go to that committee. I've got senior an opening. I'll see if I can get on that or... Some senators will say, well, I've been on this committee long enough. I'm running for re-election. I'll try to get on the finance committee because you can, get, you can raise more money from the outside being on the finance committee than any other committee. Seniority is the heartthrob, the heartbeat of how that place runs.
0: I want to ask you, this is hard for a lot of people, when I ask people for, quote, unquote, a typical, describe a typical day. But <clears throat> I want you to try to do that, first of all, when you were secretary for the minority. What would a typical day have been for you as a secretary of, for the minority?
1: When we were in the minority, uh huh, <clears throat> much, much easier a day, much less pressure than being secretary for the majority. We would get to work and we would... Um, what time? Well, it, it all depends. Sometimes back then the Senate wouldn't go in session until 10 or 11, 12 o'clock back then. Now I'm talking about the early 70s. And now it's, you know, it's 8, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And we would get there and, and, and get the cloakroom settled up and the pages would make sure that the um, the desks were all covered with the bills of the day or amendments of the day and a congressional record from the following day. Uh, we would sort of check around to see how many, if a bill was pending and carried over from the previous day, whether it's any, there are any amendments that uh, people on our side Wish to offer, and of course. When you're in the minority, uh, it's easy to throw hand grenades. When you're majority, it's tough to catch them. So there were a lot of a lot of mischief would go on then, and um, <clears throat> we were sort of as best we could sort of get a, a a batting order for the day as far as senators are concerned. But again, we couldn't do too much of that because we were in the minority. I mean, uh, if you're the majority, if you're in the minority, you have to. Report, Recognition by the chair is, is straight to the majority first, and back then it was very, very strict. It's loosened since and through the years, where it's a sort of a one side one time and the other side the next time. But uh, it was pretty much just to um, to keep the senators informed what's going on in the cloakroom on the floor, seated the pages were doing their jobs, um, continue to 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 honor senator's request for information about a bill that was going to come up. In other words, someone would call and say, Howard, that conference report coming over from the House, don't let that pass until I need to speak on that. Howard, I have an amendment to this bill. Don't let that bill come up. So I had a calendar, which we called the Bible, the legislative calendar of all the bills that were listed at a committee. And underneath each one of them, we had notes, contacts, so forth and so on, to speak contact, so forth and so on, two amendments. Um, wants to speak 30 minutes before final passage, all written underneath that bill, and that was our Bible, which we used in the minority to sort of, people would get up and, for a prime example, at the end of a bill, get up and say, uh, I voted against this bill because I, it's a rotten bill, and here's why I think so, and here's what it's going to be, here's why it's going to cause certain problems for my state. That's just an off-the-wall example, but I think it shows my, the drift of how we would be. Not I don't want to use the word negative, but play defense against the legislation that were being choked down our throats back in the early in the seventies when the ratios were fifty-seven forty-three or something like that. I hope that answered your question. If yeah. I, I did as best I could, but I really get deep into holes and personalities of senators who wanted to hang up things and and delay things. Well I don't want to of discourage course, you from course that, de, Of from that. Del- delay was the name of the game then too as you get back to the filibuster and the, the, and the speeches of the years when for example Strom Thurmond spoke for 24 straight hours and other senators tried to reach that level. Of course that was back in the Civil Rights Bill of 60 and the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and when I got there, it was mostly the end the war amendments against the, Viet, uh, against the Vietnam War when they were trying to cut off the funds as, seems, as they seemed to think is the, um, the political thing to do. And I emphasize the political thing to do today with what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. But you had the, a very, very tense time with John Stennis as chairman of the Armed Services Committee in dealing with amendments such as the Hatfield-McGovern Amendment to cut off funding, or a church case amendment to do the same in a different way or a different time schedule, or or a case church amendment. Um, I'm talking about senators from years ago to cut off the funds. I mean, and that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks And that's really where Bob Dole started to cut his teeth when he got there in 69. Because it was the UNO war amendments that was really, really pulling that thing down. Then we had the demonstrations out in front of the Capitol on a number of occasions when thousands would be out there, you know, protesting the war. But um, it was um, very tedious times. Very tedious times. And I think I missed part of your question there in the beginning of Well, I was asking about a typical day as
0: Minority Secretary. So would most of your day be spent on the floor of the Senate, if it's in session, or in the cloakroom and in your office, or would you also be meeting with the minority leader a lot, or where would you go? Where would you be personally?
1: When I got there, 99% of the time I was on the floor. The job of the, well... The way I looked at it, my job as Secretary Majority of Majority or Secretary of Minority was to be on that floor, and to watch what was going on. And the longer you stayed there, the more savvy you got about how you could predict what was going to happen. And if it was something that was that uh, there was a, a amendment that we didn't expect to be offered, or an amendment that would blow the bill out of the water, or something, just Off the wall, then it was my job to go down and get the leader. Uh, We would also, you could also predict that being there for a number of years. When you saw a Ted Kennedy, an Al Gore, a Paul Sarbanes, a few other liberals like that coming in all at one time, you knew something was up. And you knew there was something was up that Rep- the that Republicans were not going to go along with. So you run the red flag up. You'd call the people who might be interested in something in that bill. It was a busing bill. It was Jesse Helms. It was something dealing with health and welfare. It was uh, a, a low wiker. If it was something dealing with the military, it was uh, John Tower or Barry Goldwater or someone like that. Or if it was something dealing with finance, it would be... Uh, Carl Curtis or something like that. But just you had to. It took a long time to get a feel of what was going on. But when you saw something was coming, and whether you were, you know, reacting or overreacting, you had to let the leader know. Of course, the leader couldn't be on the floor. And like I said, ninety percent of the time I was in the cloakroom, which is part of the floor, or on the floor. Now with Baker, and much much more so with Dole. I would make twenty to thirty trips, sixty-three steps down those Marble Halls from the Senate main door down to the Majority Leader's Office for this, that and the other. Did this get done? Did, did you call, did you talk to so forth and so on? Did Senator so forth and so on tell you about wanting the vote change because his plane's going to be late? I could go on for, you know, you catch my drift. But most of the time was to watch that floor to be sure that those notes on that so-called Bible, the legislative calendar, were honored when a senator wanted to be there to speak for or against an amendment that he might offer or oppose from someone else to speak. <coughs> Excuse me, to speak for or against the bill, you had to be there. Let's take a pause here. You ready? I'm ready. I did have to find my way up to the, my office um, you know, two or three times a day, but I didn't get to spend much time out there because the phone would ring and I'd have, I was needed at the floor. But I did have to do things like signing papers to, uh, for kids who applied for a paid job or to other things like getting ready for committee assignments or to handle work that came from revised rules from the Senate Conference Committee which was a spinoff and Republican Conference Committee and Republican Policy Committee. So I had paperwork up, up there, but I always, I uh, did have a very, very qualified um, secretary, NAA, that worked for me from the time that we took over control in 81 until I left in 96, uh, Marie Angus. Um, I don't know how I could have pulled the job off without her, but um, I didn't spend as much time in the office as I wanted to um, because I just, most of my time was, like I said, on the floor or the cloakroom or in the leader's office or in some confab, again, leaning up against the statue between the two when a senator or the leader wanted to talk in confidence. So, would you and the minority leader <clears throat> strategize a lot? Sometimes most of that was would be done by the committee people who had the bill on the floor. Uh, some of his people, uh, the leaders, uh, people in his office who handled the bill through committee and had a- expertise in that field. Uh, I We were really the uh, the nuts and bolts of, of the bill when it got to the floor as to notifying people, as I've said, and I'm being repetitious here, people who wanted to be there to speak when a bill came up or to offer an amendment or to, to oppose it or something like that. We wouldn't strategize, uh, we, we would a little bit because we'd have to get into the parliamentary situation. If it was going to be a very um, controversial bill, then the leader and, and we in the cloakroom would sit and talk about whether what we're going to do about cloture, uh, whenever, what's, what's the right time to offer this amendment or that amendment, with uh, some senator offer a first degree amendment, and someone try to come in and get a second degree amendment. Of course, that's all depending again on whether you had priority recognition. And if you minority, you did not. You sat and waited your turn, and got the crumbs. Uh, I, yes, I was in, in part of that because I had to. Um, I had to be on the floor all the times I said, and I had to know what was going on. In order to protect those people who wanted to who needed to be there for this, that or the other.
0: If you saw a group of Liberal Democrats coming <clears throat> onto the floor <clears throat> and you needed to alert someone, would you do that by phone from the floor or would you
1: literally have to go off the floor and No, I didn't have time to wait for a telephone. No, I didn't have time for a secretary to pick up the office pick up the phone down the office and wait a minute, Howard, I'll put you on hold and stuff like that. No. So that you would all... you would move physically. That was all footwork if he was in the office and he was meeting with someone and I would sort of take the temperature as to who it was and what it was all about but if it was important enough I'd knock on the door and say uh, leader I- we need you I need you on the floor so you would uh <clears throat> i'm I'm just thinking of a
0: baseball analogy here what would what would uh, your role have been
1: a manager almost no, I don't want to go that far I, um maybe bullpen coach or something like that that would would, you know prepare for something that is um, is about to happen or is expected or things aren't going too well so you better get somebody in there to you know to you know watch it watch the situation of course you had the whip and um, and some whips uh, spent a lot of time on the floor some did not and of course at the same time you had the if we were in a majority, it was the chairman that was managing the bill on the floor, who had sort of the run of the things because it was his bill, or if we were in the minority, it was the ranking member on the committee, working in concert, hopefully, with the chairman to try to get the bill through. So you had you had those two, but it went certain things that would come up, it would be more of the leader's call, and I would let the leader know or Whichever the case may be, the chairman or the ranking member would say, you better check with Dole and see if this is okay. But more than likely it was Dole would just call umpteen times a day. I would run down the office when he'd say, he'd call the clerk and say, where's Howard there? And I'd run down the office and he'd want to know what was going on. <coughs> Which saved a lot of time because <coughs> a lot of times it wasn't anything going on, but he just wanted to know while he was sitting there doing his paperwork this out and the other, then i go. So he'd be working in the office and he always wanted to know what was going on on the floor and he would call me whether it was something to talk about and sometimes I would go in and he'd be uh, engrossed in something he was doing and sometimes I would walk in and sit down or sometimes I'd stand at the desk for five or ten minutes and he would still be reading or writing and he wouldn't look up and I'd get tired standing, I'd sit down and sometimes I'd sit there for 10, 15 minutes, and he would come up and say, Um, uh what about that amendment? Um, who that amendment coming up this afternoon, so forth and so on's amendment. Um uh what about what about this? What about that? He would be engrossed in what he was doing, but in the back of his mind he wanted to know what was going on, on the floor, and I was the person that tried to give him the best advice as I had uh, as to what was going to happen on the floor? A lot of times I caught myself, Brian, trying to second-guess what was going on on the floor. I guess I was trying to, maybe trying too hard or something like that. When I would see things come on the floor, people come on the floor, as I alluded to before, you knew something was up. And especially if they came on the floor when the chairman or the ranking member or the chairman, whichever the case might have been, as to who was in the majority was off the floor and there were just a couple of other senators waiting around to give a speech and here's when you see these guys come on where i hate to say this i don't mean mean to be disrespectful but you knew there was trouble brewing uh when when they would come on the floor and we had a military bill spending or pending or a uh, 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 appropriation bill dealing with, dealing with labor or hew which has changed its name or You'd see a Harkin, uh, or some other, a couple other Westerners come on when there was a big agriculture bill down, and you know that, you, you follow my drift. You, you knew something was up, and you had to get the the chairman, and or whichever the case may be, ranking leader on the floor. If they weren't available, you couldn't put your hands on them. You had to tell Dole, and then you would follow his directions as to what's the next step. And as minority uh,
0: secretary. How large a staff did you have? You mentioned an AA and a secretary, I think.
1: The staff state uh, was the same. I had, a, I had a, a, a secretary and an AA. She was a secretary and AA in my office up in the, in the third floor, S337. I had four people who answered the funds in the Republican cloakroom. Uh, you asked about the minority. Uh, we had uh, I had a deputy secretary for the majority, minority. And I had another floor person who worked the floor who helped us with getting the little uh, info sheets ready, which we had down at the desk where senators could walk in and in not too detailed language, but enough to give them a drift of what was going on about the amendment they were going to vote on. The rest of that information should have come from their staff, who was staff members from that committee. Um, I had an office downstairs in the Capitol which handled the correspondence that dealt strictly with floors, the floor activity, bills, amendments, speeches, holes on bills um, and we would answer letters that would come in to say don't let that bill pass unless I'm here and i have going through this, I don't have an amendment for that. We'd have to answer those letters. I had two people downstairs that would that would handle that. and to deviate from where, If we were in a majority, that office had one hell of a job, impossible job, again, if we were in a majority, of finding someone to preside over the Senate. They constantly changed their mind. They constantly had more important things to do. They had to go somewhere. A big fat cat came in the office. We always were notified five minutes before the senator was supposed to preside over the Senate. They were were supposed to preside for one hour. And sometimes they would show, sometimes they wouldn't. That was a headache. If they didn't show, what happened? I would go to the dining room. I would walk the halls. I'd go wherever I could, up and down the if someone had been sitting on the floor and wanted to make a speech or to do a little bit of morning business because to praise the Lions Club back in their hometown, sir, I need you. I need you for one hour. I can't do it. i got to go to committee. Let's we'll st- get up there until I can get somebody to fill in. Were there times when
0: all business came to a halt for lack of a president? No,
1: no. We we had We had to beg a lot of times and, I think they realized that if, if something that, that happened, or that person who was in the chair, Brian, from 1 to 2, and he got to 2 two fifteen, he had something to do because he was scheduled for 1 to 2, and he would be squawking. And you can't blame him. But sometimes things like that happen, and we just had to deal with it. We just had to deal with it as best we could. But that was a very, very time-consuming, a very difficult thing to schedule because... Senators could be senators.
0: Did you prefer being
1: secretary to the majority or secretary to the minority? That's a tough question. I guess I cut my teeth on being secretary for the minority. And it was, um, again, not to be repetitious, but it's easier to throw hand grenades than it is to catch them, and that's what you do in a minority. Uh, We were outnumbered considerably as far as the ratios Um, we had to object to things uh, as best we could we had to try to defeat cloture to keep from a bill being choked down our throats Um, we didn't have much say or any say although sometimes the leaders would work together on some things as to how what what the schedule was going to be in the Senate Um, when it came to a an important piece of legislation like an appropriation bill or something, uh, we invariably wanted to get a time limitation on it so it wouldn't get out of hand. Because sometimes we would end up with appropriation bills like defense, or defense appropriation or defense authorization bill with 150 to 250 amendments. Or the budget resolution was, thank God, we had a border plate time limitation on it. And all the time, amendments would be offered. Amendments would be offered. It would just be—it would just be a bit of a rat race. Uh, it was—it uh, was just difficult. <coughs> it was just difficult to get that get that going in the um, in, in the minority because you know we were—we wanted to slow things down. I mean, Bill Clinton wasn't sending bills up that the Republicans wanted to vote for. You know, tomorrow afternoon. And vice versa when Bush and Reagan ran up there. But majority was much more fulfilling because you knew if, if you had the votes like we did when Reagan came in in '81, uh, uh, things started to roll. Um, we could we could invoke cloture and cut off debate. Uh, we were the, the people that came in when on Reagan's coattails came in is to be. They were very good team players. Uh, we pulled together. Uh, Baker in his few years, and then Dole, before we lost control, um, could get things done because uh, the senators stuck together. There was uh, party unity. Uh, that was a fulfilling time. But um, as far as being a, there's it was just two different. It's just light and day. You, you know, you play defense. You try to stop what was going on because it wasn't your cup of tea, it wasn't your legislation, compared in 81 when Reagan came in with a master like that in a, in the White House with his staff and, and to send up legislation, and we had the numbers. And we had people who were willing to um, give Ronald Reagan anyone, anything he wanted because he was responsible for them being there. The Jerry Dentons, the Paula Hawkins, the Mac Mattingleys, and da 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 da. <coughs> much more uh, fulfilling be in the majority. Much, much, the days went quicker when you were when you could run the circus, than the days when you just had to watch and buy a ticket and stand in line to get on the merry go round. <laughs> um,
0: this is it's sort of an aside, but. Um, um, <coughs> How did you learn that you were going to be selected as the Sergeant-at-Arms? How did that
1: come about? Well, there were... Doe had to appoint his people to be Secretary of the Senate and Sergeant-at-Arms. And I had, um... I had worked the floor for a long time. And I was, um... I was feeling a little burnout, and I did not know at that point that Dole was going to resign from the Senate in June of 96. We all knew about the political campaign. Uh, and I did not want to leave the Senate floor because it had been my whole life as the Senate floor, and I thought I had the pedigree and personality to deal with people on the Senate floor as best I could in difficult circumstances, whether it be Republicans or Democrats. And I didn't want to be taken away from the Senate floor. At least I didn't think I did. But Dole asked me one time in his office in front of a fireplace, he says, "Um, I've got these openings. Um, Would you like to be Sergeant Arms? I said, whoa. I had to kick that around. He says, "Um, how do you know where all the skeletons are in the closets? Uh, yes. If I don't I know how to find out. He says, um, you know all the Democrats have been here for years that have held these positions when we we're in a minority. We need to clean house. I said, Yes, I do. Of course there were a lot of those people who were friends. That didn't come in the picture then, it couldn't and I was concerned about the floor and uh, my assistant uh, list was she he said he would move her up and I thought well that's a good move she was very qualified and I wanted to lead the floor because sergeant arms was what a was much more encompassing much more responsibility that I had on the floor and it just got to the point where I just about had my fill of it. And the security, the protocol, the meeting of heads of state, the inauguration, da-da-da-da, I said, yeah, I could do that. And so I did it, reluctantly. I didn't like being Sergeant Arms because I lost that contact with the senators, that personal, personal contact. When you walk in the morning and someone come up and the morning, "Did you see that ball game last night? You know, yeah. Do you believe that? So forth and so on, or you know, uh, so forth and send to the town in Baltimore. Get a hold of your friend and get some tickets. Let's go to a baseball game. Or you know, come in. I want to tell you my my son and his wife are about to have their third baby, or stuff like that. Little things like that. It, you you became a family. I mean, not, not only just the traveling part that I talked to, talked about earlier, but the, uh, the sitting around in the cloakroom and. My kid's graduating from high school. i got to be there. I don't care what they're voting on or, or you know, so forth and so on happened in the family. They'd sit, you were your sounding board. You were someone that they could talk to that they didn't have to talk to in the office. It, it just, it was a very, there was a lot of personal contact. There was a lot of uh, friendships to develop. And upstairs I didn't have it. I just had all these various um departments, computer, the WWW would just come into existence, and all the senators in the offices had a computer guru who graduated from, they all thought, MIT, and they wanted every damn piece of equipment that would come down the pike, and that was really a pain in the butt, because we had a computer center and, and over in the, next to the to the uh, Union Station, every time the, Phone F- would ring, it'd be some senators office. I want to, I want a so forth and so on and so forth and so on. Uh, we don't have the money for that. Well, maybe we'll try to get the expanded appropriation for next year's um, computer center, uh, the police department. And I enjoyed that-the security pipe, because I knew all the guys on the police department. And uh, the parking, you know, everybody, senators say, oh, uh, my wife always had the opportunity to pull up here and park, and it was a spot so forth, and she all parked there. And someone said she couldn't park there last week. Well, Senator told tell her to come over and park in front of the cat little things like that. I, it was sort of what I was used to, but in a much sp- smaller scale, in a much more of a nagging, irritable type of thing than dealing with the United States Senator and his interest or disinterest, on something on the Senate floor, it was a big, big difference. I'd lost that floor contact and that personal contact.
0: Let's talk about personalities now for a bit. Um, when you first went on the floor, I guess Senator Dirksen was the right. minority leader. Right. Describe the senator
1: from Illinois. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. I'd heard a lot about... Dirksen before I started working on the Senate floor. As a matter of fact, I got the first um, impression from working, as I said before, as a doorman up in the gallery to seat school groups and just the general public. And it seemed like if Dirksen was speaking on the floor, and if you've ever heard him speak or recording of his speeches, it was something to behold. I mean, it was it wasn't something from a Hollywood set. It wasn't something from the best professor at the college that you went to. It was, I can't really describe it. The tone of his voice, the intellect, the articulate way he could emphasize this or that. He seemed like he could talk about the weather, and he would have you in the palm of his hand. And I guess that not only the voice, but the, the delivery, the hesitation, uh, the emphasis he would put on things that would just stick with you. The greatest orator, orator uh, in the years I was in the Senate was Everett McKinley Dirksen, and one heck of a nice man. And his here I was cutting my teeth in the Republican cloakroom, and it didn't take me long to realize how much of a relationship he had with Lyndon Johnson who was then president because they dealt together they dealt with each other when Johnson was majority leader and umpteen times a day I might have been a overly emphasizing that one a lot of times a day Dirksen would come into cloakroom and he'd walk up to me or to one of the guys and I was I tried to stay there as much as I could because I figured as much as I spent in that cloakroom, the more, the more I saw, the more I heard, and the more I could accidentally overhear, the more it would, the more I would learn about the operation. Anyhow, Dirks would come in Howard. I, I, I can I come close to saying, Howard, would you get the President? They get in the phone booth, and we had a row of phone booths, four and four. And this is the length in the cloakroom, and my seat would be here, and this doesn't do much to this audio. There's a I could almost reach out my hand and touch booth number eight, and Dirk would get in, and he told to the president. he never shut the door. Well, Lyndon, I know I don't have the votes. I can't help you. Lyndon? Yes, Mr. President. Lyndon? They go on and on. I thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this. A young kid from southern Delaware, I'm over here sitting. listening to this conversation. And of course, I got to know some people much, much older than I. They worked for Senator Dirksen Glee um, Gomian, John Gomian, Gomian um, Oliver J. Dompierre, who handled the legislative business for the floor. And I. Somehow got into being close to some of those guys, especially Mr. Dom Pierre and at that point the Ev and Jerry show was going on If you remember that Jerry Ford and Ev Dirksen Well, I became sort of Dirksen's personal page or courier They would rotate back and forth they would they would they would tape it and Majority, uh, Minority Leader's Office, Dirksen's Office in the Senate, then they go over to the House side and do it in, in, uh, in Jerry Ford's Office. I don't need to be disrespectful by saying Jerry Ford, Congressman Ford and Senator Dirksen and so forth and so on. And I was the one who would carry the bags, the information. I'd carry the, the water bottles and I'd carry the, the speeches and I'd carry the, this, that and the other, over to this, back and forth, back and forth. So I got to be in that clique, although here I was just a 25-year-old kid wet behind the ears trying to, hoping the Senate would get out of session that night in time for me to jump on a bus and go to College Park to take a, for a class. that I was going to College Park to try to finish up on a degree out there, which I never was able to uh, to finish. Anyhow, and Dirksen would come in the cloakroom and he would sit and he would, he would treat you like a grandson, just as nice as he could be. How are we doing today? We shouldn't be here long today. Um, we have another week and it's recess. Keep your heads up, boys. Then he got sick and emphysema set in, and um, they took him off cigarettes, a heavy smoker. So he came to me one day and walked into the cloakroom, and he came up to my desk. I was the first person, there were three of us then, and he looked at me, Howard, He said, he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget it, I can hear him like he's sitting over there right now. He, say, he said, Howard, how are we fixed for cigarettes? I said, Leader, we don't have any cigarettes, knowing in the back of my mind that he'd had problems with emphysema and so forth and so on. I said, no, sir, we don't have any cigarettes here. We don't, we don't smoke. He says, could you get me some? In the store, yes, sir. What do you do? Well, you do what the man said. So I went downstairs and I got a pack of Winston cigarettes. Never forget it. And I had them on my desk drawer. He come back, and I knew he wasn't supposed to have them. He was sneaking cigarettes in the office. He'd come in every once in a while. After that, Howard, how are we fixed for cigarettes? Well, I meant one thing. I'd open my desk drawer, give him a Winston, he'd take a cigarette, he'd get him on the phone booth, and he'd smoke a cigarette. And I thought to myself, what the hell am I supposed to do? And um, i never forget, I was living out in Spring Hill Lake out in New Carrollton on The ninth day of September, I believe it was, when he died. But um, his relationship with, with Johnson, the way to handle those civil rights bills together, the way Johnson could count on Dirksen supplying so many votes for this or that, how they would somehow get together over drinks and work things out that John Q. Public and many senators had no idea how it came about. And a lot of times on a Friday, I remember one in particular. I was in the back office. We were at a session. Dirksen was in town. <clears throat> Mr. Dompierre was in there. I was having a beer and they were having their whatevers. And so Mr. Dompierre said, um, Better hurry up. We got to get out. Company's coming. Okay. So we had anyone got out of the office and the, open, the elevator door opens up and here comes the President of the United States, big Lyndon Johnson. Two clotheslines, one in each hand, with a beagle on this one and a beagle on that one. Went down the halls of the Capitol. Mr. Don Pierce says, let's go back and see if they get okay, get situated okay. One person left in the office, Glomian, can't think of her first name, Anyhow, she was left in the office. Johnson walks in. The dogs have a run in the place. Dirksen had a back office where the bar was—a very narrow room between the main office and the senator's office. And they started pouring drinks. That led, drawn to the president, I shouldn't be saying this. The president came out, and the beagles got up in one of the couches in the outer office. Fireplace was going. And before I left, I heard him say to Dirksen, "He says, glad you are 'Glad you're glad you're working tonight, Lyndon.' Lady Bird and the girls are out of town, and that's the loneliest damn place in this city. And that's been documented many times, but I saw that one. And that, that's that's the relationship that Johnson and Dirksen had. Did that's- Dirksen have a temper? Wow. Yes, but it was so. It was a temper that, that never got violent, it never got personal, and it was quickly subdued. You know, you could hear him get fired up about something, but in those days, you didn't have the horses to win anything, you had to compromise. And that, refers, that reminds me of an old Dole slogan. Compromise is not a bad word. Well, that's all the Republicans could do then. Because I think when I started there in 1968, I think the. I think the ratio was 63:37. I mean, if you don't compromise, or you don't play ball with the other guys, you're not. You don't have anything. And that's why they were. That's why Dirksen was so good. Especially during those big those. Those big bills, you know, the sixty Civil Rights Act when Dirksen, when, Dirks, when Thurman spoke for 24 hours, and the 64 Act, and then he comes to in the in the, come the war, and then of course Dirksen died in September of '69. Then in came Howard Baker, uh, Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, and then Baker, That's when Scott retired. So, what would you have to say about Hugh Scott? <clears throat> Much more liberal than um, Dirksen, very nice man. Um, not as visible as Dirksen by a big stretch. Um, was elected by the moderates and liberals, Republicans then, and I'm referring to the. Now I shouldn't say this because I don't know how they voted that, but that wasn't that wasn't my purview then, but. The liberals that were there, like the, the Cliff Case from Jersey, and Jake Javits from New York, and Ed Brook from New Jersey, and da-da-da-da. But there were some conservatives there who were Dirksen conservatives. The Dominics, the Allets, Thrusmorton, Morton, Wynn Prouty. Margaret Chase Smith was a shaker and a mover then. Very, very close to Dirksen that um, didn't quite like the fact, but had to get along because we were in the minority. I mean, we had to stick or survive, or they, not we, they. Um, but um, I very r- rarely saw him lose his temper. He was so even-minded, even his voice, his delivery, his speeches, and even if there was something in the cloakroom that was going on between various senators, he would come in, and get involved in it and it would be the that would be the soothing factor that got those senators to agree to do this, that, or the other. Just his presence, just the power, just the the awe of that man, the speaking ability, knowing that he had if there's something that could be done to help that Republican senator or senators to get a piece of action on a bill that was the majority was had before the Senate. If there's anybody who could get the White House to help them get whatever they wanted in the mill, it was Dirksen, and he was on that pedestal. A great man, a great leader. I just wished I, I, wished I'd been around him a little bit longer than I did. But when I when I what time I did have around him, I'll never forget. So, do you imagine uh, that Scott won?
0: the minority position on a close vote or was he not challenged do you do you recall anything about about that
1: well you got something that well i shouldn't i should know that one brian but i don't i wasn't really involved in it then because i was just one of the peons in a republican cook room um i i do believe there was because scott was the scott was the uh heir apparent and i'm not so sure Something sticks in my mind that someone ran against him, and then dropped out on the first ballot, or the second, or something like that. It, it doesn't. I don't think he was unopposed. Although, when you're a minority like that and you have so few seats around like that, the uh, the infighting uh, doesn't get you anywhere. So, and I don't. I think it was sort of a locked-in situation. But Scott just was not the. Um, a nice man, very intelligent man, uh, really looked out for the state of Pennsylvania. But when he he just did not have the charisma, the relationship with the other with the senators that Dirksen had, and therefore he didn't have the relationship with the White House, nor the relationship that Dirksen had with Senator Mike Mansfield, the majority leader. Do you had to be one of the top three that I've seen in my time, Mansfield and Dirksen.
0: That doesn't leave many others. No. Without do you, a doubt. Do you think that um, Scott sensed his uh, that he he was compared poorly with, with Dirksen, or do you think he just didn't?
1: That's a hard one to answer, uh, although at times he would come on the floor, and this is Personal opinion and personal opinion only, because I have to be on the floor watching it. And he would come on the floor and he would attempt. And and again, I, I can't say this enough. This is not a mean. This is not a, a to knock Senator Scott at all. But he would come on the floor and try his damnedest to duplicate. Never able to come close, to duplicate a speech. Like Dirksen might have given. And I don't know whether that answers your question, but that's but the best I can come up with that. So, yeah, but he, he knew it was impossible. It was impossible. Although he was a very good leader. He just didn't have that. It, 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 like the, the old saying is, that's a tough act to follow. What were his strong points that made him a good leader? Um... Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> He did eventually had, uh, have a good relationship with, with, uh, with Mansfield. Um, he knew how to work um, the, the committee and, and the bills. He had some good people in his office uh, that would help him, uh, good staff members, um, floor manager in the office that helped him get involved in things. Um, there was quite a turnover that was starting to happen. Then the old bulls were starting to leave, the, the brooks, the cases... Uh, the months, uh, well, Mun month had left before uh, the proudies, and they were starting to turn over into a younger, uh, a younger type Senate. The, the Bakers were coming in, the Packwoods were coming in, uh, the young guys in '69. Dole was coming in in '69. Um, the whole, the whole, the personality of the, of the Republican side of the all was changing, changing quickly. And uh, but it was just a It was just a a different situation with with Scott from Dirksen. Um, Margaret Chase Smith, who was chairman of the Republican Conference and ranking, I believe, on the the Armed Services Committee was much more of an influence uh, on the Senate and on other members. Uh, Thurman uh, became much more of an influence. Uh, Senators like Tower and Gordon Allett and Pete Dominic and other people like that sort of picked up, and not they were opposed to Scott, but they were able to help him work with others to get things done as what little we could offer to Mansfield as the majority leader, instead of being just a constant thorn in the ass.
0: It sounds a little bit like uh, under Scott, it was more a Republican team effort. But would that also mean that under Dirksen, it was more hierarchy or or not?
1: Yes, yes, very well put. Yeah, it was. With well, Dirksen, knew he could go. Dirksen knew he could go to the White House. He could go to Mansfield, and he could go to some friends on the other side of the aisle, the Stennis's, the Eastlands, the Dick Russells. I think Dick was still. To, I hate that. I'm in a habit of using these first names, when I shouldn't. I never did for 30 years. Senator Russell. He could go to those guys. They were the old bulls. To some of them, Republican, Democrat, didn't make it a difference. Conservative, Liberal did. North and South did. And it was much easier to get things done. Now, when, when Mansfield needed a party-line vote, he got it. When it was a way for flexibility, consensus he got he would work with our people
0: good I think we're ready, Howard Baker is ready to enter the stage but let's take a pause here for a moment okay okay Okay. what about uh, Howard
1: Baker that was an interesting election um, when Scott retired and Baker ran. There's a number of people who were involved in, in running for the uh, minority leader's job. Um, I think McClure and Baker and a few other people's people are, are in it. But I think a lot of people realized that Baker Baker's style was was easygoing. There was no temperament. There, there was no um, argument. There was... It sort of reverted back to his father-in-law as to how he was going to run the Senate. And that was long before we envisioned what was lightning striking twice in November of 1980 when Reagan took over. Easygoing to a degree. Good old guy from the hills of Tennessee. Very, very well liked. Very well respected very intelligent very articulate hard-working Um, his leadership um, and I had the same job as I alluded to before his his job as leader was primarily and I hope I'm not misreading this but this is my gut for what it's worth was to listen to and to follow to a degree the people he had around him. Baker had a lot of people in his office, and some who came from the White House, some who worked for, one who worked for Scott, some intelligent lawyers. Um, and he really relied on their suggestions. Um, Baker was easygoing, like I said, and he could get anything done especially in the majority, because it was a new thing. We were new kids on the block. Wow, well, is this how it's going to be? Is this what it was like when those guys back in 1954, the last time we were in the majority? Good God, we never dreamed we would ever be chairman of a committee. Hell yeah, whatever you want. Run the bill through here, and we'll get it out, we'll get in on the floor, we got enough votes to pass it. I mean, it was a completely different atmosphere. So therefore, in an atmosphere like that, compared to all the years we were in a minority, the new leader had to have a hell of a nice... Go at it. I mean, what, what was what was the obstacle? I mean, we had to gather a few votes once in a while that we needed to get cloture to cut off debate on the bill that we wanted and that Reagan wanted. But well, the tremendous budget fights that we had, and the Democrats tried to mostly offer amendments that made to add on money to the budget bills and to appropriation bills that made Republicans vote against it. Well, that's the name of the game. You know, then that way you can run against it. And we could fight them down. We could beat them. Um, Baker, shortly into his leadership, got involved in taking the Panama Canal away. Giving the Panama Canal away, whichever is the best word. That sort of split the ranks a little bit. Uh, there were people, Dole and others, that were opposed to that. Well, Dole, or Dole, Baker got... Involved in, again, suggestions from people in his office, as well as working closely with Frank Moore and and, uh, what's his name, Jordan from the the Carter's White House then. And this was this was in the uh, I'm I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. This was back in before we took over control, and uh, he got that he got through that. Laxalt opposed him on the floor. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. This this happened before this back in the Carter administration, but um, you know after he became leader, Uh, that's going to confuse things. But um, he sort of he came out of that very well to lead into what I had just said about how things had changed and how it was almost Christmas every day when we were in the majority. But um, he sort of did leave a pedigree. Uh, not a pedigree, he, he, he sort of did leave a a uh, a taste in people's mouth that, you know, he was a little bit more of a moderate conservative, i.e., giving the Panama Canal back to Panama, until Dole, Bob Dole got up and offered an amendment that said, that sort of let things down, let the pressure off, by saying, yes, we give it back to Panama, but U.S., warships have access to that canal above everything and everybody else. Now since then that canal's been taken over by Chinese and Japanese interests to hell won't have it. And God knows it's it's been there's been peace there so far, there's no problems whatsoever. But that was a quite a challenge for Baker to take on when he first became leader. But it did sort of the way he handled it, without that much animosity in the Senate It did lead him into the job again after Reagan took over and we became majority on January 3rd, 1981. He sort of cut his teeth on that Panama Canal and had not ruffled too many feathers. It made it easier for him, on top of being majority for the first time since creation. And that really gave him um, an easy way, and I was surprised to see him leave after four years. It really was.
0: The power of the president, I guess. That was it. it.
1: That was it. That was it. So he really thought he had a chance, and everybody else did too. And, and you know, I don't know. That's not for me to speculate. Hell, what I know about that. But maybe the timing wasn't right, or maybe he would just. You know, but he, he gave it all for a while, and it just didn't happen. As, you know, as it didn't happen for for Bob Dolan in '80 and '88 80 and. 88 and
0: no, I was referring to the fact that uh, Reagan asked him to come over and uh, be chief of staff at the White House, and that, oh yeah, yeah. And Baker probably would, would have had a hard time saying no to the president. Oh
1: sure, sure. That's, you're right about that, of course.
0: So now we're up to Dole, and uh, I want to backtrack a little bit here. And do you recall your f- first becoming aware of Bob Dole?
1: I don't th- working at Cloakroom answering telephones again. I don't. Um, Think I'd ever heard the man's name mentioned when he when he was over on when he was over on the House side. But I remember when he came in. I remember, like I said, Frank Carlson and Jim Pearson were the senators from Kansas, and all of a sudden Carlson was retiring, and in came Bob Dole. And I can see him sitting down at the end of the cloakroom shortly after he gave the oath of office, and he wanted to sit there and take as much in and make new friends as quickly as possible. I could just tell from his body language, from the expressions on his face, from his enthusiasm, that he wanted to quickly put the fact that he was a former House member and now he was United States senator. And I've always thought of that. House of Representatives as the Senate's AAA ball club, the little leagues, to get people ready for the Senate. Back then, in the early 60s, you didn't have the people leaving the Senate, leaving the House, and coming to the Senate as much as you do now. The Senate now, not to deviate, the Senate now has become, in my opinion, too much House-oriented. I think that's got a lot to do with the bipartisanship or lack thereof. It doesn't, it lasts, but it doesn't last long. Those guys' mentality, and I want to get back to Dole, their mentality was they had to run constantly every two years. Everybody knows a senator runs every six years. Well, they had that little hiatus where they could tend to the people's business. The House members, with that ingrained, when they came to the Senate, they were constantly doing this and doing that, involved in this and involved in that. Well, when you come from four thirty-five to one hundred, the more you get yourself involved, too, when you're in the Senate, coming from the House, the more clothes you're going to eventually step on. And you're going to get lucky, and you're going to make friends here. But the more you're involved, if you're in that two every two-year mentality, before you're there for, and I always said you weren't a senator. A, a, a senator didn't start getting his seniority until he was there for his second term. First year, or first six term, in my opinion, was just touch and feel. And I think that had a lot to do with it. But I could Can tell, I,
0: let me just interrupt here just for a second.
1: So to get back to where we were, Brian, and I, I, I jumped um, I jumped off a little bit. do was sitting in the cloakroom and take in as much as he could, making friends, talking about this and that and the other. And um, he would sort of pay attention a little bit that I caught what was being said down at my desk where the three of us were trying to answer questions. And, of course, we were told never to give out information. but This wasn't accurate, but when, when senators' offices would press you into something, you had to give them an answer. You couldn't say, I don't know, so we did the best we could. And sometimes we didn't give an accurate answer or a full answer. And I can remember Dole looking down well, that look he'd get on his face, which I've said a million times, and sort of cock that one eyebrow and sort of shake his head and give that little left hand wave off, just to say, "I don't think they know what they're talking about." So I said, "Oh, oh we better watch this one." He's coming full bent for leather, but I think he sort of took the old act, the old standing role that Senator Richard Russell from Georgia used to have, when you're elected to the Senate, that you get to the Senate and you can throw the rule book out of the window. You can read it until you're blue in the face and you're not going to understand it. The only way you can understand the Senate rules is to sit on the floor, to watch, to listen, to ask questions, to hear those terms in the rule book used by the presiding officer and by the senators on the floor asking this, that, or the other. To constantly be on the floor as much as you can and watch the Senate proceedings, that's how you learn the Senate rules. And as Richard Russell used to say, and then maybe in your second year in the Senate, you can think about giving your maiden speech. And that was the gospel for years around there. And I think Dole took that to heart to a degree. The latter part, uh uh-uh, as far as waiting to speak. Because when Dole got there, the first thing he led into was supporting his friend in the White House. Supporting the president day in and day out. Nixon. And the war amendments. Vietnam. Kennedy and Hollings coming on the floor and saying Nixon is extending this world for this war for his own personal use. Which Dole would tear him apart as best he could, and we had a standing order in the cloakroom that whenever someone would come on the floor, whoever it was, to criticize to criticize Nixon, or to take up this is was this part of Watergate, yes it was, to take on Nixon about the war, which was not a Republican war. That's debatable. But we had a standing order to get on the telephone and call Joanne Coe in Dole's office, or Betty Meyer, in Dole's office and to tell him whatever he's doing, they're on the floor and so forth and so on and here would come Dole and he would take take up for Nixon in the White House and he would do it religiously and he would do it six or eight times a day and he would leave whatever he did whenever woman would come over and start one of these wild accusations like a, a Kennedy or whoever and he would leave committee meetings he would make speeches on the, on the floor in the morning called special orders when they could reserve 10 or 15 minutes to speak to whatever they want to, and he would try to clarify something or defuse something that was said the day before. He was just dedicated to, to taking on those Democrats in Nixon's calls. Of course, then Watergate came uh, 70, in sixty-eight, seventy-two. 72 second term. Um, I'll never forget, but another thing that I'm going to deviate a little bit now, the first job I think that uh, Nixon never gave Dole when he made him Republican National Chairman, I think it was 70 or 71. Again, like I said before, I'm terrible on these dates, but maybe we can do something about that later. But and he was chairman for about a year and a half. And I remember one time in the where we were sitting and talking about something, and someone brought up Camp David. <clears throat> and somebody said, Bob, how many times have you been to Camp David? Dole says, Once. Oh, just once? Dole says, Yep. I was chairman of the Republican National Committee, and I got a call from the White House. It was a helicopter ready behind the White House to take me to Camp David. Dole says, I thought, huh, here's my first trip to Camp David. He's a little denied. know that Nixon had me flown to Camp David, the farmer he, was, farmer he was chairman of the Republican National Committee. He said, that was my one and only time to Camp David. <laughs> he loves to tell that story. But um, to get back to where I, what we were talking about was uh, how he really became, contrary to, to the old saying is, don't say anything for your first year or two, he really became a fixture on that floor in supporting Nixon in supporting Agnew back in, in, in 1771 in and seventy one, uh, even though the wheels were coming off the wagon, starting to come off the wagon then. But um he would just he dedicated himself to coming to that floor to support Nixon and those in, in that war amendment. When those guys would just continue to take him on and saying it was a Republican war, he was using it for his own personal uh accomplishments and just some Weird, weird accusations. That's really where where he really started to make a name for himself.
0: And did this cause resentment among any of his Republican colleagues? Did you, did you pick up? Or?
1: No, if it did, it didn't show. If it did, it didn't show. Because he had other people that would help too. I mean, John Tower and, and some other senators that I couldn't, couldn't mind right away that would join in. But Dole was the leader. Dole was the leader. And...
0: We're talking now about his first term, and in fact, the first part of his first term in the Senate.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: was this stepping forward
1: quite exceptional? Yes and no. It all depended on the personality. When some people would come in there and they would do the same thing to a degree like Dole did. Uh, some would be a little bit more reserved, but um, when you saw someone come in with the, with the determination Um, of of wanting to sit and listen and talk in that cloakroom, you knew what was next. You knew this next thing was he was going to take to that floor. And when he did, when his committee assignments, I think his first committees were, uh, he got finance committee, I think off the back, and obviously agriculture committee, which he had to have, and I think I'm right there. That wasn't a bad stepping stone for a new guy coming over from the house. And I don't think he had another leadership position from then on. I know he didn't. Except for chairman of the, um, uh, finance. finance committee, until he became leader in um, in eighty four. But some would come in and do that not not a lot, Brian, not a lot. But Dole was um, Dole was one that really you know jumped into it head uh, first because of that support.
0: So you and your colleagues on the staff uh, saw a winner when you saw one.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: That was apparent from the beginning.
1: Yeah. I always thought to myself, when I first saw him, and uh, of course we all had a little bit of rub because he liked to do, he wanted to make people realize that he was a senator. And I remember one time we were working on a Saturday. We each had to cloak room up on a Saturday morning from 9 to 12. It's funny, when I think back, and I did when George W. Bush was, like the President of the United States in O two in in two thousand. That um the click room was primarily open, and I'm deviating again. The click room was primarily open, open on a Saturday morning, so former senators who still lived in town or would come back and visit town, it would always stay across the street over there next to the Supreme Court building in the old Methodist building, if you know where it is. And one of the gentlemen that used to come over and I used to Work on a lot of Saturday mornings because the other two guys in the office would go to school on Saturday. And it would come the Carl Muntz, John Bricker, and a gentleman by the name of Prescott Bush. And they would come in and sit and read the paper. And they would go downstairs and have breakfast. The dining room was open from 9 to 12 or they would have coffee set up in the cloakroom. And I knew Preston Bush was a member, and that's all I knew. I didn't know anything about the family. But then I could see him coming in with his tweed coats, his Ivy League wristband, constantly walking with his hand in his two coat pockets, not in his pants pockets like normal people do, and I thought to myself, oh, that's a pretty good guy. And he was very friendly. Very artic- very um, senatorial-looking. His hair, stature, tall. But very friendly with us. How you doing? What do you got playing for the weekend? Just a hell of a nice guy. So, you know, Senator Bush, that's okay. And then all of a sudden, I guess he went back up to wherever they lived in, Kenny Bugport or wherever. And he fell out. And all of a sudden, here came this person on this picture, deviating again, working through the House, trying to get elected to House by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. I said, oh, yeah. His father, hmm. So to make a long story short on that, before we get back to where you were, um, I got to know George Bush quite a bit, quite, quite well, when he became vice president, because he was president of the Senate. I was secretary for the majority. majority. He would come up a lot of times on Tuesdays to go to a Republican policy luncheon and always wanted to meet with me first in the little vice president's office back behind the chamber to talk about whatever was going on. <clears throat> I'd always meet him at the door. I'd get invited to the White House for this, that, and the other, or go down with Dole. Went to Kentucky Derby with him. Met him on a trip. We were coming back from overseas when they were coming back from burying not brazen that, but one that, one that died there was in office maybe three or four months um, president of Russia. I can't think of his name. Yachenko or something like that. Come back from one of the funeral. on Bermuda, play golf with in Bermuda. Got getting up pretty close. I said, oh, okay. Then I mentioned to him about his father. Then to make a long story short, make a long story short, and to stop this flying off the on, on something else, so here comes George W. Bush, i thought of saying. Now, Green, now you've been in town long enough. When you got George W. Bush, elected president of the United States, you were good friends with George Herbert Walker Bush, down in the White House, the picture I'm talking about, flying to the Derby, going to Bermuda to play golf, and sat there and catered to their father, the president of the United States' grandfather, in the cloakroom. I felt myself, it's, it's a good thing I retired when I did, because I've been around too damn long with three generations like that. <coughs> but we were—I—I I, I got away from something, and what was it, Brian? Um, um, we were talking about the well,
0: Dole coming in. Oh, I—I I had one question for you, just—and this is another um, deviation.
1: Um, you, you mentioned the old Methodist building.
0: Was that a hotel?
1: No, oh. it was—I think it was originally a soldiers' home. Don't hold me to that. And I think the Methodist Church bought it, and it was a place where senators would come in town and stay when they were first elected, Senators elect, if I'm correct, until they got a permanent residence or they knew that the rest of the family was going to join them. But I think it was bought by and refurbished by the Methodist church, I think. But it's right there on the corner as you cross from the Dirksen and and Russell building. Um,
0: And this matter of former uh, Senators coming to... The cloakroom on Saturdays. Uh, they were more welcome on Saturdays probably than during the week because being in the way, or, or
1: I, I just I just think they felt coming. Yes, I felt. I think they felt uh, better coming in and 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 using the restaurant, which was kept for for their purposes and other senators' purposes, and sitting in the cloakroom and reading the papers because the papers were delivered out back seven days a week in the Senate lobby from every newspaper in the country. If you're a senator, you wanted that paper It came in so they could get back to their local, local newspaper, two days old, and send in the cloakroom. And we had a problem getting them out at 9 o'clock, I mean, at 12 o'clock. But I think they thought they had to run into place. It wasn't open. There was no other senators around. And they could sit there in their old hideout, and, you know, and, and reminisce and talk and, and relax and sort of a break, you know. it was. It was it was, <coughs> it was. used quite often, quite often.
0: This was uh, the sixth day of the week for you.
1: Oh, yes, which was not unusual. It became more important when we started working 15, 16, 18 hours a day, back during the um, Dirksen, Scott, and maybe up to the end of the Baker leadership. Then we really started working the possible Saturdays, some Sundays, and working 12 to 14 to 16 hours a day. And then when Dole came in, it was standard operating procedures. He worked and worked. And he had no place to go. And he stayed in that office. But let's not get there yet. Well, we're almost there,
0: aren't we? Okay. I, I think we pretty much finished up with well, Baker.
1: Let me, let me add one other thing about Dol. I think the fact that he was on that that fact that he came in and and, and uh, quickly um, uh, supported the president. The fact that he was on the finance committee and was close friends with Russell Long, who could get things done right away. Uh, who had a relationship at that point with uh, with Rostenkowski on the House side. If I've got my years right, and I think I do. Um, that things started percolating through that committee pretty quickly because of the relationship between Dole and and Russell Long. And the longer they worked on that committee, um, the better it got. I mean, they were very close. They could work well together. And Russell Long had that finance committee wrapped up in in the palm of his hand. And Dole came in with some other senators who came in with the Reagan landslide um, that... um, that that Dole could manipulate, and that's not a good word to use, but Dole could get to follow him uh, because of the fact that they knew where they where they came from. He really started uh, he started to raise eyebrows, especially during the big tax bills that came through. Um, and of course, there was all this the spending tax. Dole never saw a tax he didn't like, and you know all that stuff. But I think he came out of that quite well. And I think he owes a lot of that, not to his expertise and uh, in, in the good staff he had, but also to the relationship with Russell. Law.
0: And of course, uh, he Dole was the minority leader for so many years, and right. and and, uh, and and then for a certain period, uh, majority leader. Um, so
1: what was it? What was it like being around the guy? Being around Dole. <coughs> It was it was fun. You always were aware of the fact that sooner or later something serious or something would happen that would cause a mood switch. Uh, He was always, he always had that wit and he could always use it at a time that would sort of break the ice and and break the, uh, uh, the, the pressure that was surrounding a situation. I got a lot of very, very, very well and we spent a lot of time together because it was my job to keep him abreast of what was going on. Um, he was a very thorough, dedicated, a very intelligent man. Of all the people I've seen operate in the United States Senate in all the years I was there. I don't think I've seen anyone come as close to Bob Dole as being someone who could foresee something happening down the road and prepare for it. That knew how to take a senator's temperature in a little conversation over a bowl of soup in the dining room, over a phone call, to see exactly how far or what he could put together legislatively or an amendment-wise with that senator, and Dole was the kind of person who would not walk up to a senator and say, I need your support on this, and here's what I think you to do, and I'll get my people to get you a fact sheet as to how it's going to help your state. That was Dinah's style. He was a little more, took a little more easier approach. He did not play all of his cards in the beginning. He would put out some feelers, and he would let other people know. He would try to bring some support in from the side. He was, he can manipulate people, in the best case of the word, as far as getting, moving the legislative program better than anyone that I have ever witnessed up there. And that includes the people like Stennis, Scoop Jackson Sam Nunn Mansfield and I said mostly democrats then and Tower and Packwood he just had that knack he knew how far to go with getting a, a, a someone to come on board with him and he knew when to cut off and when to pursue it again another time or another day a very very intelligent man unbelievably intelligent. He would sit in his office after the Senate was over. Used to drive us crazy. Because if Dole was in the office, we couldn't go home. And it was ten thirty or eleven or eleven thirty at night, it didn't make a damn bit of difference. If the Senate had been out of session at nine and it was still eleven, we still sat there. Because he was still in his office going over what happened that day and what he could foresee is happening the next few days. Always looking ahead. Always thinking ahead. And then we were scared that someone would go because something would pop into his head. And he would—he wasn't—he wasn't a, wasn't a note taker. Well, for the obvious reason, he wasn't a note taker. But if something came to his mind and he didn't want that to slip his mind overnight he would call someone in from the office <clears throat> if it had to be someone that had something to do with the floor or a vote count that I that I was doing for him I was the man. If it had to be something to do with finance it was Rod DeArmond, his chief of staff if it had something to do with foreign relations it was Al Lane or somebody like that or something to do with setting up a dinner or something that it was Joanne or Joyce McCluney and that would happen an hour or two after the session was over with. But during that time, Brian, he would plan the next day who to approach, how to approach them, when that amendment should come up. Let's wait. Let's see what happens to this amendment. Do we want to offer this amendment in that form a master at legislation, a master at moving that Senate? And when he saw it wasn't going to happen, There would be no movement that night, whether it was 10 or 11 o'clock. We would sit there for an hour or two with a sentence session with all those support people and pages and policemen and doormen and cafeteria and restaurant workers. We would sit there until he, he would think things out because there was something came up that he could try to change or to modify prior to the next day, they would expedite the next day's proceedings, he would do it. But sitting there at night after the Senate went out of the session and he would go over in his mind and people would leave him alone. Every once in a while he'd call you in but you knew he was not even He would sit there and he'd go over in his mind everything that happened that day. And especially the personal contacts. Who he talked to. How that conversation went. The next morning I would come in and use it before I got there, because I lived 16 miles away. He lived in Watergate, and he used to never like the idea that somebody might be a little bit late for work. Mm-hmm. Of course, <clears throat> he never had to worry about Rush Howard. There wasn't one for him. Anyhow, he would come in and he'd have those ideas that he thought about the night before, and he'd say, first thing in the morning, we hadn't even gone in session yet. Howard, um, just two of us, Get so forth and so on on the phone. Get strong, get sad, get somebody else. And that's when he was he'd fire that shot that came up the night before, or that morning, about how we could do something to expedite this or expedite that.
0: These uh, nighttime sessions you describe. Mainly, he was sitting alone in his
1: office. A lot of times in, in his office alone, yes. And sometimes it would last. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Sometimes it lasts last over an hour or so. And
0: did any of you who were all waiting around beholden to him uh, resent it? Uh,
1: no. No. But, you know, we had lives too. And <clears throat> this is going to sound like sour grapes. We had lives too, and some people had families, and some people had... Uh, and We had to do the things that some senators, and I'm not, I'm not referring directly to Dole, but some senators had uh, people that would go pick up their laundry and and do this and get the car fixed and and do that and we we didn't have much time for that, especially when the phone would ring on Saturday or or some of the most some of the toughest times would be. Uh, when a senator would pass away, and I'd have to sit in contact every senator, and we'd put that together. That was an awful lot of work, and then fly somewhere to bury him. But uh, no, that mostly it was. Uh, we resented it to a degree, but we did resented it to the point where you'd bite your lip and let it go, because you knew that was the uh, that was his lifestyle, that was his work style. And this was while he was minority leader as well as majority leader.
0: Would that be correct?
1: Mo- mostly majority leader mostly but not all altogether because see, at that point he was answering to uh, he was answering to the White House it was much different than answering to the minority And, of course then he was you know he was dealing with uh, agriculture committee that be a huge farm bill when it came through um, the, the appropriation bills that we had the big budget fights that we had when we, we lined up forty or fifty consecutive votes in a row because the the amendments were all debated and then set aside until the end and that was just a that was just a terrible way to legislate but it was the mandate that was put over it then and the various other things that he had to deal with which brought personalities into effect Uh, the line-item veto which he was for which rubbed Bob Byrd the wrong way and here he was and bird was leader and he was leader and bird didn't think that line item v2 was constitutional and Dole and much of our people wanted to reduce spending and the deficit and bird pulled pull his little constitution out of his pocket and lecture for 45 minutes to an hour and eyes would roll every direction you possibly could think of. and it, it was just it was a tough situation but he would always prepare himself that night or that next day he knew what he wanted to do and he knew how to go about it. What about some anecdotes that you
0: have stored away during about Dole?
1: I don't know where to start. I guess a lot of them are how he could Uh, in a, alluding to what we just were talking about, I guess a, a lot of things that would really sort of put a new breath of air in the atmosphere is how after a tense, tough day on the floor, either just before we would go out of session or just after we'd get out of session, he'd come up in something and say um, uh, something like, like uh, well, Maybe we we won't work this Saturday. You know, like that was a consolation prize, getting a Saturday offer. Um, don't have such bad looks on your face. You're still getting paid, aren't you? Yeah, you know, little things like that would sort of diffuse it a little bit. Or um, the next week he would find something, somebody would come in the office, a movie star, a baseball player, Aaron, Charlton Heston, Bob Hope, I could go on and on. And he would invite everybody down. And that was his, that was his thank you. Or sometimes we would go, we'd start to talk about a trip we were going to put together. Or sometimes he'd be down in the inner sanctum, they called it, which was the Senator's private dining room downstairs, separated across the hall from the private dining room. And he'd invite me down. Come on down, of course. Not the senators sitting there. Staff members not allowed. Just to talk about something, because more likely somebody he was sitting with was saying something he didn't want to hear. But just the little things he would turn around and make it make you feel like what we were doing was worthwhile, and that he cared. But he had a peculiar way of saying it. But once he did it. You knew after you thought it through that that was his thank you. That was his sincere thought that, yeah, we'd done good.
0: Would you? That's a little,
1: that's a little I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that, that's, a, that's a little difficult to to sort of put your hand on because Dole was not the back slapping, uh, thank you very much type person. Never has been. Just not his makeup. And I think a lot of that comes from the terrible um, th- situation he had with back home in the Dust Bowl and in war. And I think a lot of that has nothing to do with it because he really didn't think, I don't know whether this fits in what we're saying, mm. <clears throat> things would happen to people or things would happen. And he would sort of look at him, and he would give me the impression that, yeah, um, yeah, that's too bad, but so what? And that's my language, so what? Not, not his, but he would feel like I've been there. I when I went through that, and I should expound on that a lot more than what I did. But I think he catch my drift. He felt that toward a lot of things, and that's the sort of think that's why he was sometimes a little. I don't want to use this word, but the best I can come up with now a little aloof about. Personal feelings and personal interactions with people.
0: Um, were there times when you recall that you recall where he was really down?
1: Yes. Yeah. We had some. Um, well, the obvious thing, when, you know, when things weren't going good, weren't going good with his, you know, his brothers and sisters and stuff like that, he took that hard. Um, and to touch on briefly, how every time the anniversary would come around of his injury or his time in bed, some organization would send a video or something like that, and he would just it would break him up. And I always thought that was not as much pity. As it was, God, if that had to happen, I'd have had those 36 or 38 months to do so much more than I'd done already. That's nothing but my gut feeling. But he really took that hard. When he got into legislative stuff, he really didn't like the skirmishes that he had with Byrd. Although Byrd was a very... <clears throat> Hard nosed disciplinarian, to say the least, when he was leader. I mean, you had to do it his way and no way. And Bob Dole was not the kind of person that could sit and take that. But you had to. And then there were things like the Tower nomination. Which George, with President Bush, sat down in ninety 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 one, I think it was something like that. Don't put everything you had into that one, because after all, um, that was a member of the family, and all kinds of accusations came up and. Um, John Tower is one of my best friends in the Senate. Uh we kidded. Um, we did this, we argued about sports and John Tower and a gentleman from Arizona were like tooth and nail, they they were together all the time and they were ornery as hell and they would pick on each other and I would get wrapped up in the middle and um Towers' nomination came down, and things started to unravel. And Dole put everything he had into it, as did Bush. And it started to look worse and worse, and it was really pulling Dole down. Because not only it was a friend, a member of the family that was hitting the rocky road, but Dole wasn't able to control a Bush nominee like he thought he could. Now I I don't even want to think about whether Dole wanted to show Bush after what happened in in the primary season. Yeah, you send it here and I can do it for you. I don't think that's necessary to get into, but when the wheels started coming off the Tower wagon uh, I got involved in it because Dole knew that Tower and I were close. We had the same in my office upstairs, in the corner overlooking the mall, it was in 337. And right next to my office was Johnny Tower's office. And of course, you had a lot of people up there when he was chairman of the Armed Services Committee, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we played tricks on each other. And I, uh, I'd have ice in my office that he could use if he needed to. And my secretary would, he would do things for him hold a key or something like that. We were just, we were very close like that. And um, I remember the constant conversations that Bush would have in cloak Dole would have in the cloakroom with Bush. Outwardly in the cloakroom, we had two little two desks in the cloakroom other than the desk where the people sat to answer the telephones. One was the desk where I would sit, the other desk where some senator could sit and sign mail. And I remember when I was down at the White House one time with Baker. Ron McMahon, who used to work for Baker. Fred McClure, who was on Bush's staff, and somebody else. And the president walked in. and said, what are you guys doing here? I said, we just gave up eating in the Senate dining room. I said, come up and come down here to taste all this military food. He got a kick out of that. So he walked out, and Baker says, Green, what do you think about the book coming up? I said, I don't like it. I don't like the damn place I'm working in. And I think that they're going to hang with John Tower. Now we'll get him through. I said, it's going to be 52:48. He's not going to make it. I agree, and you know what the hell you're talking about. I said, okay. So we went back, then this came up, and that came up, and this. Nunn was doing everything he could on the damn committee to defeat him. And John, Ta- John Warner was playing kiss-ass with Sam Nunn waiting for none to make a move or to release him to do what he wanted to. Kasselbaum had the obvious problem, because all the women rights in the country that were against Tower. She was in a bad predicament. I don't remember whether she announced early. I think she did before the vote, but she was the only Republican that voted against Tower. I think I'm right there. The vote ended up 53, 4, 53, 47. Yeah. The day before the vote, I was sitting in the cloakroom at one of the desks and one of the kids ran in, ran out on the floor and got doors and said the White House was calling. And you always tell them it's the White House because they say, this is the White House calling. Well, who's calling? This is the White House. Well, that's automatic. That was the president. Doug got on the phone and he, talked, he was talking to voice, and he knew I was listening to him. I was, listening, I was staring right at him. He said, "Well, you know, we got, we tried this one, we tried that, and the Democrats are in lockstep, and and none, I don't know what Warner's going to do. It sounds like Warner may follow, so so forth and so on." And I've tried to talk to Nancy, and I don't know this or that. And then finally, hung the phone up, and he took two steps toward me and to go out on the Senate floor. And he just stopped and stared ahead ahead and looked at me and he says, it's over. And without even thinking, I just, the words came in my mouth, I just said, I'll be a son of a bitch. And uh, that was was tough. To talk about eating your own for a bunch of special interest groups just got hold of it. Behind the white, uh, behind the, the the, the Democrats who were hoping to get into the White House to gang together and just completely destroy a good guy like that. Not saying there wasn't something to what were they, the charges were, but to the degree of which they charged him was still was in question and always will be. The news media just ate him alive. do really put a lot into that, as he did in the in the big tax bill. Oh, my God, we spent so many nights on the floor with that, with he and Russell Law. and the tax bill. Of course, there's nothing more complicated on the floor than the tax bill. And you try to offer an amendment that was drafted by someone, a member of the committee, and expect the members of the Senate to understand what they're talking about when you're not on the committee. Then you have to revert back to whoever you happen to pick up for a short term as an expert on tax law, as a staff person, and it, it, it's just a very nerve-wracking, tense time. Um, half the time, the guys didn't know what they were voting for, and they voted because Dole was for it, and and Long was for it, or Long was against it. And I've never seen him work that hard. Of course, he was a hard worker, morning, noon, and night. But it would look like we were getting near the end on something, and um, I would say, let's let's keep pushing. Oh, we're pushing. It'd be 10, 11 o'clock the next morning. and This went on for five or six days. Not a good time, I said, leader. I said, uh, coming in at 8, 8.30 in the morning. So the time you got home, and it takes me 40, 45 minutes to get home, the time you get home and you wind down enough to get to bed and you get four hours sleep, you jump up and you're up again, and you, you almost meet yourself on the GW Parkway going back and forth. And I said, later you gotta let up a little bit. I said, I got some tired people. I said, These pages haven't been to school because if the sentence hasn't after a certain hour there's no there's no page school. I said, these kids in the cloakroom and I said got one in there going to law school and the other's got a wife who's pregnant. I said, We gotta slack up a little bit. So the next morning we came in at ten o'clock. And that was that was just dull being dull. He listened. But he knew that, you know, in order to get things done, we had to go on. He um, he liked to constantly threaten recesses. Um, he would always say, this party got to a big holiday recess or something like that. And, Boys, don't spend too much money on your airline, fly, airline tickets. Um, if they got anything that's not ref- refundable, you better get it. And rarely did it happen, but it worked because we would say, okay, it's Tuesday, we've got a 110 amendments to go and some had better not be offered or some better be refined to be accepted because we're not leaving here this week, whether we work Friday night or Saturday in the recess to get it done and don't stick to it, 11, 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning and we get it done.
0: Um, I asked you, about low moments, um, when did you see the senator really elated?
1: <clears throat> there's one other. There's one other thing. If I could just keep keep that one thought. There's one other thing I should bring up. There was a highway bill veto uh, when Reagan was president, and I did a head count. And we had some people who were opposed to uh, the president on the veto, and it were people that. Uh, that we were, were always with us, like Steve Sims, because the amendment, the bill, now I'm going back a long time, and I, I might be a little off. The Westerners were going back because they didn't want to limit the speed limit on some of the roads out there. Some of the roads out west don't have a speed limit, and they wanted to limit some of the 65 or something like that. Mm-hmm. They were opposed to that. Some of them were opposed to the double trailer effect. Some of them were opposed to, even back then, uh, Mexican uh, trucks coming in, how to run the highways? Anyhow, make a long story short, we were about three or four short uh, boats short of a uh, of a sustained vita. And I get a, and Dole calls me in the office and he says, ten eleven eleven o'clock in the morning," he says, "Get your people ready. Uh, the president's coming up. Don't say anything." I said, "What do you want to do?" He says, "Well, you are going to use the old Senate Chamber across the hall." So I didn't call anybody next. Sunday. I know here comes the president of the United States, all the security and stuff like that. And Baker was even stay up. And we went in the Senate chamber, and um, Dole started talking about the veto thing. And there was a camera crew that uh, White House Communications had brought in to film and audio the whole thing. And I walked over to him, and it, it, the pressure was you could cut it with a knife because these guys just, they couldn't budge because they were up for re-election the Westerners, and it impacted a lot of the Western states. The lot of the Eastern states got so much money for highway bills that they were you know, just sort of a, a mixed match There was no real solution to it. And so Reagan got up, and there was this camera crew in there, and I, they were all dressed up in their red sport coats on and their striped red ties, and I said, Who are you guys with? And said, We're the White House Communication. We're filming this. I said, No, you're not. I said, you're in the Senate chamber. And I said, we don't allow photographs in here unless it's agreed to by the majority minority leader. And he says, the guy says, young kid, 20s. He says, we're with the White House Communication. We travel with the president. I said, listen, young man. I said, I don't care who you're with. I said, I'm the secretary of the majority. If I need to go get my leader, I'll do it. By that time, Howard Baker walked over to me, chief of staff. He said, what's wrong, Green? I said, "Um, I guess these guys are with you. I said, Senator, I think this meeting is going to be a little bit more tense and heated than we think it is. I said, we don't do this to ourselves up here. Why should we do it and embarrass someone here? Baker turned to the two staff guys. He says, you're on greens turf now. We're not in the White House. Out. And then the meeting started. And it was a lot of give and take and Dole made a hell of a statement to try to support the president. But D'Amato and Stevens, I'm sorry, D'Amato and Sims and Slade Gorton, the Westerners who had this hang-up, were just enough to tilt it against us. And that's when the president got up and said, I beg you. Those words came out of his mouth. I beg you to support me on this veto. And he got beat. They couldn't swing the votes. Dole couldn't swing them. The president couldn't swing them. I beg you couldn't swing them. Howard Baker couldn't swing them. Tough, tough time. See, that eats at your your core when the leader and your own people apologize to you for having to do what they have to do. But if they don't, they turn around and show you that you're gonna lose my seat if you don't let me do it that is a hell of a predicament to put a leader in that was just one more that I had at the end but didn't you start to say something else Brian
0: i was just asking uh, since we talked about low moments uh, if you remember any really striking high moments for Dole
1: oh by god yes I I think anything that he did the the way he put himself into uh... civil rights legislation um, American Disabilities Act, uh, anything dealing with the United Negro Fund. Oh, he was, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying that that a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was gearing up to run for president or had run for president or, or something. I think that was just in him. From Russell, Kansas, he wanted to help the people who needed school lunch. He wanted to help the people with um, disabilities, and, and of course, you can see that anywhere today. Would curbs and braille and drive-throughs with things like that you know that's all Bob Dole but the things he the, the enormous farm bill that we passed which was right down his alley with subsidies and how he could cross the aisle and work with McGovern and Harkin with um school lunch programs and and subsidy bills and so forth and so on and the famous Get together with Moynihan on Social Security, and then George Bush turns around a few years ago and informs the Social Security Overhaul Committee and appoints Moynihan and, and overlooks Dole. But he really got into stuff like that. He could sail it he controlled that floor. He whether it was Byrd or it was, or as Mitchell, he controlled that floor, and he was there morning, noon, and night. And he gave up his his speaking, which he used to run to all the time to speak here and speak there, and he'd be back the next morning. He didn't know what it was like to sleep in the bed. How that man put up with that, I don't know. But some of those bills that um and I I can't I can't I got a list done, but there's no sense referring to to a text like that. But some of those bills that that he really got into with a tax bill, the agricultural community, anything to do with the veterans, anything to do with helping. Um, military place, uh, uh, bases around the country and a military construction bill, just as he's doing now with Walter Reed. You could tell that the the makeup of the man was in the bill for the good of the bill, not for the votes that he would be- get in Kansas or across the country. He was inward. It was he was just he was hell bent for leather to do this because it was the right thing to do, and not the political thing to do, and it was obvious to a lot of people. Of course, the press would not turn that way. The press, all, press always would say, "Well, in order to run in so forth or so on year, Doles pushing this or that through," and then he would get on to meet meet the press, which was a great opportunity for him, I think at one time he held the record for a number of appearances on Meet the Press, and Russert and Schieffer and those guys really treated him well, and he really stood up for himself, too, in explaining that type of legislation, whether it was school lunch or school busing or ADA or farm bills or tax bills or let's not, let's not spend unless we can pay for it. Um, he really made a good, some good points, and I think that had a lot to do him with, him, with him you know, moving up in, in leadership and eventually getting on the, on the tickets. But he would put his heart, mind, and so on. And I tell you one thing, too. His staff would lie in the back of that chamber when he managed to vote because they, he didn't want, they didn't want him to have to turn around and look for someone whose expertise might have been in this, that, and the other. Some center across the aisle surprised him with they better not have their ass down the hall and have to be tracked down and come up here. They better be standing on that floor when he when he wanted them.
0: Really, Staff de- members had access to the... They were on the floor of the Senate, is that what you're saying?
1: Staff members have access to the floor if you are a committee member or if you're a member of the leader's office. Or oh, other people had to... Well, anybody had to come in, had to get a pass to come to the floor from committees. Except if he were on the leader's staff, and they would—that was—that was something that was different. And, and our staff, we had to flow and come and go.
0: Within the spectrum of Republican philosophy, where do you place Dole? Because you describe uh, these bills that uh, were were so important to him, and most of them trend sort of very. <coughs> humanitarian, government programs, uh, sounding almost like a Democrat.
1: Well, you say that because of the uh, increase in government, and Dole was always campaigning against that, but I think he looked at it as, as he looked at the smaller picture instead of the bigger picture, that these bills were going to help people, people that he knew from Russell Kansas in the Dust Bowl. His mom and dad had to work the way they did. And he looked at this as not being something that would be a burden on the country but would be a positive to the people who were in need. Uh, What did he you know what did he get out of spending so much time going to Bosnia to try to identify these missing people who were killed by Milosevic? You know what did he have getting involved in all of these in, in WW2 which was his heart and soul with the veterans but to sit with Clinton and, and help on this Freedom Families Scholarship program in, in 9-11. A lot of that didn't, I don't think that ideology came into the picture too much there, the liberal or conservative or the Democrat or Republican. I think it was Bob's Dole's way of giving back to people that he was himself one and had friends and family who were deprived of certain things. And first and foremost, I think he they really his hang-up was, was disabled Americans, obviously, because he did so much for people around the Capitol. He had a couple of girls who were deformed, or, or, not, or not deformed, but maybe paralyzed, that ran elevators and stuff like that, and he used to give them things all the time. The way he would treat his chauffeur, the way he would give Christmas presents to people to work for him, the way he would call in people, Brian, whenever there was a Nixon or a Charlton Heston or a bunch of ball players in, he wouldn't think about calling the senators in. They were they an invitation, but he would call the people from the police department, the pages, the people who swept the floors, the people who washed the dishes down in the dining room. They come up and line up, line up outside his office to have their picture taken with so forth and so on, including Nixon. And if it was food left, over, help yourself. The little guy he was always looking out for. And it made him feel good. It really made him feel good.
0: So let me take you to the closing chapter in in your Senate career and start with the election of 94. What what did that bring? What changes did that bring to the Senate?
1: Well, somewhat as a surprise to to start off with, um, and I think, I think it really, uh, this is just my gut feeling now, and I, I, I want to make sure that this is just from Howard Green's Warp Bond and no one else's. And I think it really uh, threw him into a, a, another trend of thought as far as what he was going to do in 96, for starters. He had a problem with Lott who was constantly breathing about his back to run for leader. First of all, to run for whip against Simpson. Um, I think we were going to take our time to reshuffle in 94 <clears throat> and not be so hell-bent for leather as we were before in, in 81. Um, the legislation, I think, was... Was a lot of it had to do with, um, with with security and stuff like that, and and trying to cut down the deficit and pay for something that you're going to spend money for by taking money from here for there. And but I think um, the main thing was was Dole was gearing up for '96, and you could sort of tell it. And although he didn't put the word out on the street that he was leaving in less than two year year and a half. It was a pretty awkward time because he was gone an awful lot, and he would left he left a lot for Simpson to do, as Baker did when he was running for president, left a lot for Ted Stevens to do. And a um, lot was starting to act his, his his normal way as a House member, um, being pretty rough around the edges and pretty rough shot and told Center to his face at a policy lynching one time that he would not run for him, for, run against him for whip unless he, you know, announced ahead of time he was going to do it. And, of course, he reneged on that and ran against him and, and beat him. And then a uh, lot was Dole's whip and he wasn't too comfortable with that. Uh, and then a lot would go through the cloakroom and spend a lot of time talking to senators in the cloakroom, not knowing that he was speaking in front of my employees or didn't give a damn, and would state how, and this is prior to the word, that Dole was going to leave in in June of 96, and speak to the fact, well, you vote for me and we won't be here after 6 o'clock, and you vote for me and there won't be any votes until afternoon time on Friday and nothing until 5 o'clock on Monday. Well, Dole didn't play that way. You got paid. He'd always say, I say center <coughs> fourth so forth as so has gotta leave on a plane at 4.30 4, in the afternoon, he wants to get to California. Well we're not gonna shut down business. He's getting paid isn't he. He loved to say that. But do would, would a lot would come around and he would try to I don't want to say backstab, but maybe that's a little bit too harsh, but he would try to tell people that if you did it my way it would be much better than in Dole's way. And that caused caused all of animosity up and down the line. And of course Simpson, since he got beat from by a um, lot as whip, as they all do, when they get beat from shut election, they start to bail out. And Lot uh, wasn't a very good um, colleague and in the way he did things behind Dole's back. I told Dole and he um he died his head, and I think he knew it. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Maybe I should have kept my mouth shut, but my allegiance was to Dole, just as I had to be careful when Stevens ran for Dole for leader in 1984 because I was traveling a lot with Stevens. Whenever Stevens' recess came up, Stevens had a plane that was leaving Andrews Air Force to base go somewhere in the world, <clears throat> and I was always on the plane at his request, and... Stevens ran against Dole, and Stevens had the votes locked up, and Dole beat him, and I was the head vote counter. I handed out the ballots, and I collected the ballots, and I counted the ballots, and we always had two senators who would come up and count the ballots, and we did it in the old Senate chamber behind the platform, behind the desk, and I had Roger Jefferson and Johnny Tower helping count the ballots, and we counted them once, we counted them twice, and... I said, boys, gentlemen, I said, I want you to do it one more time. They counted them three times. And it was Dole that beat Stevens, and Stevens was... I was one favorite to win it all. Dole was sitting in the back row, and I'm standing by a curtain behind him. If you've been in the old Senate chamber, I know you have. The red curtains come in. I was standing off the side of one of the great pillars, and Dole was all the way in the back over here. And He looked when he caught my eye, and I went, he went... So as he put in one of his books, Howard Green was the first person that told him he would be elected majority leader, Not I forget which one he put it in. But um, that was that was a little difficult to do, because and I traveled with Stevens, and I said, and Stevens said to me, we had a trip planned that day, and we had a meeting that night, and he says, I want, and he thanked Dole, and he uh, went to Dole and told him he would uh, help him any way he could, and so forth and so on and we had a meeting in Stephen's office. We're supposed to leave the next morning on a trip to, I don't know where, around the Pacific or the Antarctica or somewhere like that. This is the day of the election night in Stephen's office and Stephen says, Howard, we're going to cancel the trip so get hold of the military and tell them we're not going anywhere. And uh, I said, oh that's right. He says, "Um," says, hell no, I'm not traveling anywhere in the world with a bunch of senators, and two of them which are, i invited them on my trip, and two of them are sitting, sitting here amongst us, and there were seven of us sitting in the room, and I was the only staff person. And two of the senators are here sitting with us had lied and said they would support me on to vote for the election, and they turned around and supported for Dole, and I'm gonna get on the airplane and take them on a trip around the world. He called the Pentagon and said, We don't need your damn plane. And I thought, ooh ooh. So it took a while for that to calm down, Brian, but it did eventually. And then Stevens was a player with Dole all the way through. Give Dole credit for the Alaska Native uh, Acts, Alaska Native Claims Bill, which was the forerunner for the pipeline. Getting him statehood. So. But he was really he was really proud of the bills that he that he got involved in. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, with United Negro Fund and the bills I alluded to and there's so many more and I've missed so many. Uh, the tax bills, because that was really his expertise, and it just goes to show you how brilliant the man was, if he could handle things like that. So he resigned
0: from the Senate in uh, in June, and you stayed on until September. <coughs>
1: I stayed on till after the convention. We went to San Diego for the convention.
0: So that was your plan. You, you, you...
1: yeah, I wanted to stay until I wanted to stay until '96. Until I wanted to stay until the end, in event Noah got elected for the inauguration. But Lot and I didn't see eye to eye to that. And there were other circumstances going on too that um, that I didn't have any control over with Lott. So, um, you know, and of course, the leader has a right to pick the, his choice for officers. And uh, I didn't have any problem about it, except I was told I could stay until January, and he reneged on that. And of course, I didn't want anything to do with lot anyhow. And that's that's my feeling, completely independent from Dole's. I just didn't think he's he's much of a man, and I think he's sort of proven that by some of his uh, escapades since he's been there. But we need to let that one drop.
0: So, so you resigned, or were asked to go, or?
1: Well, it's a combination of both. You know, somebody wants to somebody wants to replace you with somebody else because their prerogative, have their own person. I guess, you know, you are you're saying, well, your time is up, my retirement time is over with, and it's time when you say, you know, you, you know that it's happened to other people, it's going to happen um, after you're gone, and so my retirement papers were, were in order.
0: How did it feel to walk away from the Senate after all these years?
1: Like I've been told I had a fatal disease. Lost. Lost. Maybe I was a little bit too strong by saying that. Just felt like you lost your sense of being. Your sense of, I mean, you, and I was going through a divorce at the same time, which didn't help in a lot of ways. But you go from sergeant arms to retired federal worker. I mean, that Sergeant Arms, not to be slapping myself on the back, is a pretty strong job in this town. I mean, it, it is a job whether you have the only person on the face of the earth that has the power and the authority to arrest, to arrest the President of the United States. The Senate Sergeant Arms, not the House, the Senate Sergeant Arms. And you have a, cl- a lot of clout when when people visit the Capitol, inauguration stuff like that. And all of a sudden, psh, it's gone. It takes a lot, of, takes a lot of um, adjustment, and I had, a, I had a, a terrible time. But once I got, you know, once I got my feathers straightened out and and my ducks in line, and I realized that's the greatest thing for me is retirement's not bad. I mean, I got a nice place here in a condo in Florida. I come and go. I, I do miss the trips overseas and stuff like that, but I've done enough traveling around the face of this earth more than I can ever begin to recount how many times I've done it.
0: When's the last time you saw Senator Dole?
1: I guess Ford, presidential Ford's funeral, yeah. And we had a fundraiser at the at the Reagan Building. Back in the early spring, a fundraiser for it. I can't think of the reason we had it. They had it in the one of the halls there.
0: Was that for the uh, the salute for the uh, Dole Institute?
1: Might have been. Might have been. And they had then they had a big dinner upstairs after that. That
0: was it. Were you there for the for the earlier part of the evening?
1: Yeah, like downstairs in that big hall there. In, in Congress, I think. Yeah, you know, Constitution not Constitution Hall, but.
0: I think it was the Congress Con- building.
1: Con- yeah, okay. Big hall there. And then um, he had a dinner upstairs, and I was trying to sneak out. And I went over to say something to him. My junk. I went over to say something to him. I said, how you doing? You looking good for old old man? He said, where are you going? I said, I'm out of here. He says, chair upstairs. Got your name on it. I saw what he talked about. I said, come on. I said, come on. What are you going to do? Well, that was his way of doing things. But some of the things he had with Nixon, you know, just were just were priceless too, because he he ate that stuff up when Nixon came up to to visit the office. Especially some of those meetings that Nixon would have with former senators and sitting senators, and the Bob Strausses and the guys from downtown would come in. He had one meeting which you know, you're well aware of, which happened, I think, a couple of days before Christmas, when Nixon stood in that S two hundred seven. and talked about world affairs. I have never seen a bunch of senators, former senators, sitting senators, lobbyists, lawyers, big fat cats, the Verne Jordans, the Robert Strausses, sitting on the edge of their chair for an hour and 15 minutes and listen to a man that was so smart and so knowledgeable about world affairs. It was unbelievable the way that man had the had that audience in the palm of his head. Unbelievable. And you can say what you want to about Richard Nixon. He's a very personable and very friendly, and probably the most intelligent man I've been around. Dole would be close. But Dole, with intelligence, had the strategy to be a leader. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to work bills. He knew how to push. And when to not push, but as in, in far as Nixon, it was unbelievable. And Dole loved it when he came to the office. Dole wanted to see him so much at Saddle River when he was up there in, in his little apartment when um, Pat was getting sick, and then he'd come to the office. And One day he said to me, he says, hi, can we get on the Senate floor? I said, I think so. I got the key to it. And so he said, um, President Nixon comes in, he wants to see his old desk. I said, okay, how are we going to do that? I said, you want he wants to take a picture of it. I said, well, we can take a picture of the desk. I said, I can get one of the photographers to come over and do it. I said, mm-hmm. I said, how are you going to get this by Bird? Dolce, what do you mean, how am I going to get it by Bird? I'm asking you to do it. I said, well, you know, Bird doesn't like that kind of stuff. I said, now, of course, Bird has a lot of respect for Richard Nixon. Dolce will work it out. Personal, good saying, work it out. How we doing? Work it out. So I figured, well, there's only one way to do this. If you can't beat them, join them. So I went over to Byrd's office. I said, President Nixon's coming up, and we're going to be locked up and out a session. He wants to see his desk one last time. And as that photograph says, where in the hell is it? President Richard N. Nixon's last visit to the Senate. It was that night went on the Senate floor and I had the photographer there and I said to Senator Byrd, I said I hate to ask you this because I said I know you're feeling about Senate rules but Senator Nixon would like to have a picture of his desk. He said, President Nixon, sure. He said, why don't you go set it up and he was going to be with him. I said, uh, myself, photographer, you, uh, Senator Dole and President Nixon. He said, I don't want a big crowd. I said, that's okay. He said, sure. Do what you want to. I said, what if he wants to go sit up in the chair where he sat when he presided over the Senate as Vice President of the United States? He says, um, "Yeah, we could do that." I said, um, as "Long as this, you know, doesn't get out." And we did it, and Nixon loved it because we wanted finding. He he cared more about that, more about that. To go around and find his desk, because as you know, they all scribble their names in their desk, and his desk had to be used by Jesse Helms. And he he liked Jesse.
0: Interesting. Uh, we're almost to the end of our recording material here. Uh, one, one, maybe two questions left. What effect did the televising the Senate have in nineteen? I think it eighty five that that started.
1: <laughs> yeah, Baker Baker worked on that for a long, long time and wasn't able to get it through. And uh, due to a lot of Baker's work, Dole took got the credit for doing it because it came in on his watch. Uh, in the beginning, it, it, uh, a lot of people didn't want to do it. A lot of people didn't want to do it because they didn't want to follow the House, which is no reason at all. But when you know the animosity between the two, you understand it. Um, it it changed the Senate, not quickly, but over a period of time, it changed the Senate to uh, more prolonged speaking, uh, more... more window dressing, as in charts that were constantly used all the time when they were never used before to make points and to make speeches, Uh, to people coming in and wanting to speak at certain hours so they could be on live on the West Coast uh, three hours hence, three hours uh, before us. Uh, Pete Wilson used to come in at 6 or 7 o'clock when we're about to quit and they'll say, uh, call me when you're ready to quit. I'll come down during this. I said, I can't. I said, Wilson's coming. He said, you mean Pete and Repeat are going to come in again? I said, yeah. And, of course, Pete turned to be a good friend. But, you know, he had, didn't have any choice except to speak where it would fit in with Preston. It uh, it helped in the end, but there, was, there were still problems with it. The Senate could move, run much more efficient without it, or did run. But you had people then that ran the Senate, like Jim Eastland, and John Stennis, and Russell Long, and Herm Talmage, and Sam Urban, and guys like that. You didn't need a microphone to hear those voices, and you didn't. And they didn't. They would speak as long as they wanted to, whether they were wired or not. And no one was had the guts to tell them your time is up. Um. In the beginning, it was it was a burden. It, it changed the style, and it still has to this point now where people got to get up and do a little bit more grandstanding and a little bit less uh, factual presentation, uh, pro or con. Um,
0: what about attendance? Did it have any effect one way or the other?
1: Not really. Um, a, lot, a lot of them like to come in... Your attendance record was going to be visible, or printed, regardless of whether they're there or not. But what it did, though, Brian, it made a lot of people come in and give them two or three minutes to get up and explain why they voted for or against a bill where they didn't have the opportunity to before, um, and then and be on TV for to use it as a campaign thing. Yeah, it helped there, but it, it extended the amount of time that people people spoke, how often they spoke. And the style in which they spoke, in other words, um, more lengthy speeches with the, the billboards behind them, and thank God they weren't allowed to have aluminum lights and spotlights and all that stuff to make it more look more like a circus background. But it changed, but eventually to the good, um, the people deserved to, uh, to see what was going on and not to be um, uh, in, in sunset as committees were for a while.
0: I think my last question is, is more sort of setting up a scenario. If I were Bob Dole right now, what would you want to say to me?
1: If you were Bob Dole, <laughs> wow, I think probably something that I've never had a chance to say that how much I admired the man for the leader That he was when I could compare him to people like Dirksen and Scott and Baker and Byrd and Long and Mansfield and Mitchell and Daschle. To say how much it was just an honor to watch him, how he could manipulate the most deliberative body in the world and get things done in a majority-minority, and to thank him for. The opportunity to have that job, to progress up the ladder as I, as I was able to do, probably without the ability to hold some of those positions. For the right to have this home in Mount Vernon, to travel on all the trips all over the world, to have a condo in Florida, I've stood in all of no other man than Bob Dole. I think we're done. Okay, we're going to pick up for a couple of last comments here. Go ahead. Uh, just a couple things um, off the uh, off the top of my head. Uh, Dole had an excellent staff around him. Uh, Dole had some good people in various fields, um, but Dole had a, a I don't even use the problem. Dole had a peculiar way of delegating authority whenever something came to dole's mind he would reach out to the closest staff person around him and say uh, go write me a speech on this or get an amendment to do on this or take this to Howard down on the floor to make sure this amendment is filed on the person on a certain bill uh, go down the floor and make sure that amendment that um, Tom Dick or Harry put in added so forth senator so forth's name as a co-sponsor in other words whoever happened to be at arm's length Dole would grab to do something whether that person happened to be the expert in the office on a finance related matter he would give it to whoever was coming by an agriculture matter his agriculture guy wasn't handy so he'd give it to someone else it caused a little bit of friction in the office and there was a little bit of jealousy in the office but it was it was not very it was not a problem because they knew that there was no one's going to take that to Dole. That was just his style. That was just his way. And uh, I think it was more his army experience coming back to whoever's there file the order. That's strictly my opinion. There's one other thing that I wanted to mention that in 1991, during the Dorset Desert Storm Resolution, Dold and Mitchell got together with me and my counterpart to work out a time limitation on a on a, a resolution for for the war in Desert Storm in Baghdad, whatever. And we, we were getting close to a weekend and I think to a recess and we wanted to re- restrict it down to um, so much time. And I think we had a two-hour limitation, two hours for Republicans, two hours for Democrats. Well, I was sitting in the cloakroom one afternoon and Al Gore busts through the door. And this is, again, this is 91, bust through the door and says, Howard, um, how much time will Bob give me to speak on the resolution, and the war resolution? I said, I don't know, Senator, how much time do you want? He said, oh, I want seven or eight minutes. I said, are you four or against it? No answer. So I... I went on somewhere else about that time. Someone I was walking across the floor. All so I heard someone say, "Howard, it's George Mitchell." He says Howard, "Have you been, uh, you talked to Al Gore?" He says, I said, "Yeah." Uh, I said, and Mitchell, I, I have a lot of respect and I admire George Mitchell. He could be tough. He was very partisan, but he was very polite, and he did it in a nice way. Now, sometimes he could cut your head off, and you didn't know it until you moved it when it fell on the floor. But he would do it in a nice way. Anyhow. I said, yeah, he came in the, in in the clerkman and gave me a whole boatload of, of crap about um, wanting to know how much time he would get on a resolution. He says, that damn guy is chopping his vote on how to vote on the, in the, war, on the war resolution, to right for Bush to go to war. That's what he mean. He says, well, he came to me and said, I've got my time allotted. We only had two hours each. He said, I only had, I told him I could give him one a minute and a half or two minutes. And I said, huh. I said, he wanted seven or eight minutes. He says, Good luck. I go to Dole's office, something in the office. Here comes Gore walking in. I got up to leave. Dole says, they're here. Al comes in and says, Bob, how much time can I get on a resolution? Dole looks at me and says, Howard, how much time we got? I said, we're tight on time. Everybody wants to speak. We've only got two hours. He, I said, maybe a couple minutes. I, Bob, damn it, I can't. I, I got to have more time than that. Dole says, "Do you going to speak for it? He says, I'm going to speak on the side that gives me the most, about, the most time to speak. He wanted to grandstand on the resolution, and for whoever said, whether it was a Democrat or Dole, whoever gave him the most time, he was going to vote that way on a resolution. Hello? We go back into the cloakroom. I'm sitting in the cloakroom now. I left those off. Core comes in again and says, God damn it, Howard, if I don't get the time that I want, I'm going to vote the other way. I said, sir, you'll have to take that up with a leader. I said, he'll be down here in a minute. Simpson walks in, he gets in the middle of it. He's amazed at what's going on. So funny! I think Dole and Mitchell got together and they both said in so many words, we don't give a damn what he does. Here he is shopping his vote for the most amount of time that he can get to grandstand on TV. <clears throat> when it came to 2000, the election... Someone let the cat out of the bag about this. They went to Dole. They went to Simpson. Well, what was the easy way out of this? How, call Howard. He was, Howard was right in the middle of all that. Howard had, had had to deal with the time. He was giving out the time, and I was. Senators were called. I want three minutes. Warner Bulls five minutes, so forth, so on. I kept the time. I was part of my job. Democrats had their person to do it. So I was on my way to Florida, and I stopped to call a friend of mine and said, I'm Stopping in Hilton Head, I said, I'm going to spend the night on being in the She says, You better get out of here. She says, What have you done? I said, Why? Glenn Beck had a radio show on WFLA Tampa, talk show like he has now. He had me all over the thing about being involved in this, Gore selling his vote. Here we, we're in 2000 now, so it's election time. I don't know whether the time in Brian was prior to the nomination or after he had the nomination prior to the November election. I, I could look that up, but I don't I forget now. But here that was Dole and Simpson, and, and I had people coming here from as far away as New Mexico wanting to tape what I'm just telling you in a little bit more detail and a little bit more finesse. Uh, tape all this so they can send it out. I said, uh uh-uh, uh, I ain't doing this. So I called Dole back. I said, What are you doing putting these guys on? He said, Well, I told him I didn't remember the whole story, and I I told him to call Al, and Al said he didn't remember the whole story. If they wanted to get it right, to call Green, because Green can remember more things about what's going on down there. I said, yeah, right. (sighs) Green's retired. You guys are out making money, $150,000 for a speech. Who do you dump it on? The staff guy. But that was one of the weirdest things, and it ran for a while. It ran in the papers. It ran on the TVs. Limbo had it. And, um, of course, they put it on me to tell them the story, which I could tell it right, because if you got the dole in the Simpson, one would get, have, have it half-assed, the other would have it a quarter-assed. But that was a funny thing. That's the thing that you run into that doesn't leave you as long as you live. When you see people aspiring to be President of the United States would run around and sell their vote for the difference between two minutes and eight minutes to speak on a TV camera and aspire to be President of the United States, that's when it leads you to believe anybody or anything can be president of the United States. Should we end it on that note? That's the <laughs>